just for the listeners, if you can please share out the room, I would appreciate it. Uh, Bruce is very well, uh, he's a researcher in the UFO, um, he's a UFOlogist, and it would be really cool if we can bring in more people to learn more about, uh, to learn more about this. So please share this space, I, we appreciate it. Thank you. So we got a, um, you know, a few minutes. Silence is always not necessarily not bad. So just bear a few minutes and let a couple of people come in. And then when Bruce is ready, can uh, start the conversation and build it up. Maybe I should uh, send out a message to two schools. I was just about to ask, is anybody there? Because I'm about to give my son a quick bath real quick. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be listening in the background. I'll be back. No, not to worry. Thank you very much. I um, thank you for everyone for being here. I want to send a shout out to Stacky and Vana. Very happy to see you here amongst us. I've also uh, shared Bruce, who is our guest speaker. Um, I shared his book in the Jumbotron at the top. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Feel free to check it out. And Bruce, I didn't know you also had a second book. <laughs> If you can kindly tell us about both of your books, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure. I can quickly do that for people interested. Um, the earlier book, 2017, is The Forgotten Exodus, The Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution. And that's with a forward from Graham Hancock as well, which is really cool. Check out the forward, in which he kind of suggests that the information could potentially change our understanding of who we are. Um, but, of course, it takes the world to see it most and it's not exactly been well received by the academic world you know i actually had forbes um publish an article about that book a journalist wrote up a really good piece on it and within hours it had been removed and he was told never to refer to me as a source again and after that a kind of panel of paleoanthropologists appeared on forbes who would then arbitrate what the public can learn about the topic of our origins so unfortunately as much as people often assume such kind of conspiracies and suppression don't happen, uh, they really do. So that book obviously hit a nerve. So that one is tackling uh, the human origins and early migrations going right back to you know, Homo erectus and beyond uh, and up to around about 12,000 years ago in terms of uh, some of the, the different hominins and their movements. So Denisovans, Neanderthals, early Homo sapiens. And uh, yeah, essentially questioning in particular, the recent out of Africa model, but also to a larger extent as well, also questioning parts of out of Africa, which is the greater kind of uh, theory in which recent out of Africa is kind of encompassed. So if anyone's interested, check that out. And it's also, there's a uh, kind of an intro to that book on Graham Hancock's forum, where we did author of the month there, and various interviews I've done. So if anyone's interested in that, so that's a, a non-aliens-based book. And then, of course, the more recent 2020 uh, released was Exogenesis Hybrid Humans. And that's uh, indeed, of course, about the aliens topic. And that one's got forward from Eric Von Daniken, which was super cool. Cause of course, there's not really anyone else that you can think of that would be more associated with the kind of ancient astronauts visitation um, theories than Eric Von Daniken. And so in that tackles you know, the lot of topics that we're going to talk about tonight, so we're going to do much detail. But so that's the other book that I've got available on Amazon. Now we can have a look, of course, go to any bookstores and ask them to bring them in or maybe check if your library has them or tell them to get a copy. Um, of course, all purchases of the book are appreciated. 
and so other than that I've got the sub stack which people can visit as well and that's tackling more of this kind of the aliens um, themes there's also lots of articles I've done about ancient mysteries that are out there on the web so I mean if you sort of look for my name you'll find articles on on different websites you know tackling ancient mysteries and also the aliens topic so it's kind of a wide range and there's loads of interviews out there as well I don't want to sort of favor any particular shows but yeah there's a lot of podcasts and radio shows if you go onto like YouTube or just you know any of your favorite podcast kind of platforms you may well find that I've appeared on them at some point with somebody's show um, so it gives it a little bit of a kind of a uh, an overview of kind of where you might find my material so hopefully that's helpful and again yeah any visiting any of that's appreciated obviously anyone sign up to my Substack, that's super cool um, as well as patreon and like that support is always very welcome so yeah i'll let you return over to you thank you thank you very much for providing us a general overview of who you are and your book and your newsletter I'm, uh, I'm I'm excited to learn more about you again. This is our second space, but you know, every time you meet someone, there's something new you learn about them. So I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely, um, Bruce. Um, we have a pretty decent amount uh, in this in the space right now. I expect a lot more to jump in, but whenever you are ready, um, we are ready. So the the stage is yours, and we're just. I'm just waiting. I'm just going to start taking uh, down notes and then uh, put, you know, pins to specific uh, uh, key points of your conversation to kind of follow this. So I have a, I have something that I'm, I'm looking at uh, from a source online to kind of follow and see where you go with this. Um, if it's anything like last time, that story, I just uh, I'm very excited for this. So, yeah, the floor is yours. Excellent. Thank you very much. And, you know, appreciate everyone for turning up and for checking this out. I'm going to jump in with a little about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I think everyone in the space has almost certainly heard that term, usually associated with the SETI Institute, but it's not exclusive to them. For many decades now, scientists and you could say indeed the whole world has been waiting for contact from space. Now, of course, there are people who say they've, they've already had contact, but if we take the scientific view that they are currently waiting for contact from space. And if you go right back to the early 1980s, NASA pretty much stepped out of searching for any signs of aliens, even, even microbes, really. They, were, they weren't doing a lot to do with the alien topic anymore. They kind of, they were defunded a bit on that. And then we had the emergence of the SETI Institute. So that was actually set up in 1984 as a privately funded nonprofit, 501c3 uh, in California, which uh, basically had a, a team of scientists who wanted to continue the search for extraterrestrials with a core focus on the detection of radio waves. So they've hoped for the last few decades to get something like, you know, a stream of binary, maybe some dots and dashes of a Morse code signal or catch some rerun of some ancient alien comedy series. They've hoped for something, but what they have found so far is nothing. Pretty frustrating because every year, millions of dollars of donations pour into the SETI Institute. And what comes out is, I would say, a very disappointing fare indeed. Now that's not to say that they don't make discoveries. I'm sure that you know the interesting things about other planets and all the rest of it, but it, it's not 
what we are interested in. It's not what the the SETI community and what the people out there that follow SETI are really hoping for. Now, there's a lot of scientists who point out that this search for alien radio waves is essentially futile. It is looking for a needle, you know, in a haystack of needles inside of an ocean of needles. It's, it's, it's almost absurd to think that, that we would have the, the sheer luck that uh, somewhere out there in a distant star, a radio signal would be beamed towards us just at the right moment in time to arrive when we had built the detectors and while we were still looking for radio waves in that narrow window of time where we are a radio wave kind of focused culture and that we would happen to be you know pointing our antennas in just that direction at just that moment to catch that signal now that takes an awful lot of you know variables to align and as many many scientists that said they just they do not expect that to ever happen you know that's people that are in that community they expect it to basically to never happen so you think about that that's that's kind of wild just to get started now we shouldn't be entirely reliant on radio signals. Indeed, if you look at some of the luminaries of space science, and I'll start with Carl Sagan, the man himself, probably known by almost everyone in this space, I would think, and probably throughout the, the ancient aliens world, the ufology world, and the science world, you know, really a, a big name. Many a year ago, he wrote a paper called Direct Contact Among Galactic Civilizations, by relativistic interstellar spaceflight. Now, not one of his better known papers, but in that, he did the maths and calculated that really we should have had past visitations of you know physical craft coming to our solar system based on the kind of the, the hypothesis of how many civilizations should theoretically be out there, you know, on how many habitable planets and, and so on, that we should expect to have had at least a small number of alien craft pass this way. So then from that, we have another well-known scientific kind of conundrum, which is, of course, this um, the paradox that there is no signs of, of these aliens. So there's this Fermi paradox, the idea that by now we should see concrete evidence of these beings, but for similar reasons. That there has been enough time you know there should be enough civilizations out there that they should have been able to send probes or craft to explore essentially all of the milky way in the billions of years that's been available so the firm paradox asks where is everybody you know why aren't we seeing them but is that really a paradox is it really that they're not there or is there something in the way that we go about the search itself you know are we really opening all of our filters to see what might be there, or are we limiting through a focus on particular kinds of technology, specifically, of course, radio signals, um, and also to some degree now looking for distant megastructures, occluding stars, which we've, we've done a little bit of that. But there's not much else that's happened in terms of that search as yet. There's a few hypotheses now going out there as to what we might look for, but not too much has happened. Now, if we go back a bit further, we can go back to 1960. There was another interesting paper that came out called Commun sorry, Communications from Superior Galactic Communities. And that was published by Professor Ronald Bracewell. 
Radio Science Lab, Stanford University. Now that was a really, um, really critical paper because he came up with this kind of very compelling model in which he predicted that there should be a network of advanced civilizations that would have you know, met each other across the galaxy over these billions of years and that they might between them search out other civilizations and other you know, life forms that maybe hadn't reached the level of, of uh, traveling through space, but that had you know, a level of technology where they could seek them out and make contact. And he also proposed that you might do this by sending out a class of artificial intelligence probes, which have come to be known as Bracewell probes, and in some cases, Bracewell Sentinel probes. So these probes would essentially explore the Milky Way on behalf of this kind of galactic federation, if you like, making contact with any new civilization they found and operating on their behalf. And as he points out, it would make sense to ensure that these probes were autonomous and were able to act you know, without any direct communication because of the distances, that they could act on their, their own will to monitor a civilization and potentially, at the right moment, make contact with them. Well, could, could that have already happened? Could we have had probes arrived here? Now, go to one more paper, Looking for Lurkers, Co-Orbiters as SETI Observables by James Benford. Now, Benford's really, um, really the man in terms of probes in our solar system. He, he's been banging on about the need to look for them for a few decades now. And as he points out in this paper, we have had around 2.4 billion years as an observe, an interesting observable planet. Why is that? Because that's when the great oxidization event occurred. So suddenly the Earth's atmosphere filled with oxygen. And that was actually, of course, um, to do with evolution of life on our planet and new types of life that appeared on the planet that were producing oxygen. Now that would have been an interesting signature for any civilizations that were scanning the skies, looking for habitable planets. Because they would have now seen that, ah, this distant blue-green planet, this, this one has got a signature that is very likely life. 2.4 billion years, of course, is plenty of time for probes to arrive here and craft from anywhere in the Milky Way, even at, you know, subluminal speeds. You don't need to bend the fabric of space-time to get here in that amount of time. And, of course, if we're talking about autonomous AI probes, time is of no relevance to them they can amble along at whatever speed you know essentially quasi-immortal life forms that can just cruise here say at half the speed of light and arrive somewhere in that period since 2.4 billion years ago meaning we could have dozens dozens of alien probes in our solar system from various civilizations Benford points out that no one really has been looking, that these things could probably be hanging out in the asteroid belt. Some of them might be in the um, Lagrange points, which is kind of these stable areas of orbit that keep uh, in orbit with um, tracking with the Earth, so they can monitor us. Or they could be on the moon. You know, they could be, and of course, they could be on the Earth. So there is, there is a body of academic work that is pointing to a need to take seriously the idea that we may have been visited and we've missed it. And that idea of missing visitors has become increasingly relevant in the last few years with the work of, of course, Professor Abby Loeb, 
who has, of course, is associated with the analysis on the first confirmed interstellar object, Oumuamua, which he also proposes was so anomalous that it is likely to have been technological. Since then, we now know that there has been at least three other interstellar objects identified. One of them, a comet, two of them, unknown kind of anomalous meteorites that entered Earth's atmosphere. One of which, I'm sure many of you know this, one of which he has just been out to near Papua New Guinea to recover fragments from of the molten metal debris that rained down after this object came in at breakneck speeds, essentially faster than any in-solar system objects move. This is one of the signatures of an interstellar object. They are moving faster than the other objects that are in solar orbit. And so this object also it penetrated deeper into the atmosphere than would be expected, suggesting it was made of a very uh, tough material, unlike you know, the, the bulk of uh, meteorites that we, we know of. It was something like one of the hardest, 5% of hardest objects that have ever come into the atmosphere and the fastest. So he suspects that this may also be technological, along with his thoughts on Oumuamua. Now think about that. That's two objects out of the first four interstellar objects that have been anomalous, sufficiently so that a number of scientists suspect they might be artificial already, and that's four. And we've only just discovered this class of objects in 2017. So we know we've been missing these. We know that they are, that there is the paradox has a problem. The Fermi paradox has a big problem because we have been missing an astonishing number of interstellar visitors, right? And so there's also been a study on that question. How many of these are we missing, right? Well, it's calculated that it may be as many as seven interstellar objects moving through the inner solar system each year, right? So that's kind of, kind of wild, right? So that's a fairly recent study. So they did the maths on this, having you know, already discovered a number of these, we can start to calculate how many should be moving through the inner solar system. And so now if you take that number and you think, well, seven per year, and our planet has been around for 4.5 billion years, that's a hell of a lot of objects we've missed. And so for us to start talking about a paradox and where are all the aliens, and you know, where are the probes, the probes that we haven't been looking for, and now we know there's an entire class of objects, billions of which we haven't seen, and that they're coming from outside our solar system. And if anyone's not quite sure with Avi Lopes, why he thinks that, um, strongly that a lot of these might be alien artifacts just very quickly here as well keep in mind as he has pointed out either something is very wrong with our models of solar system formation and a lot more objects natural objects are being thrown out of solar systems than we ever imagined like by a huge factor or many of these objects are artificial because the idea that seven interstellar objects are entering our inner solar system years suggests that deep space is chock full of objects because you've got to think about, think about the stellar distances involved that an object leaving a solar system is just going out into you know infinite choice of directions and should be just lost into the depths of space and the chances of it ever coming upon another solar system very low right so the fact that many of these are entering our solar system suggests either an unbelievable number of objects are being thrown out by an unbelievable number of solar systems or something you know or something else is happening i.e that a lot of these uh, probes crafts debris you know uh, pieces of defunct technology and a whole wide range of objects that we have been missing 
right? So take that on board because that in itself is quite a game changer. And that's why Loeb is so sort of inclined to think that amongst these inside objects are probably many alien technologies, right? Mm -hmm. So he's not just gone off, you know, gone off his rocker or something. The, the maths is kind of pointing in that direction. Well, where I come into this is that I argue that while we say we're still waiting for this signal and that, you know, we now know that we've been missing a whole class of objects and we see that there's been predictions in the past that we should have AI probes, which we are now building. We are building small AI probes to send out some of which we sent to Alpha Centauri in the next few years. So we know this is the direction of our own technologies. So now I'm suggesting that perhaps not only have we been missing these visitors, but that we have missed a contact, that we have had contact in the past. Now, I know lots of people say there's been all sorts of cases which may be suggestive of contact. I'm not going to talk about that too much, other than to say that, yes, that's entirely possible, because, you know, if one contact is real, there's no reason why there, there shouldn't be others. You only have to validate one. And I think that we've got one that we can validate. And so this goes, now let's take it back to the present, which I say just a few years ago. Because back in 1994, there was a very interesting series of events that occurred in Australia, in which I believe contact occurred. I have to give a bit of a backstory because I think that we have got an alien Bracewell probe on Earth and in Australia. Now, there's an art, a class of artifacts called Chiringa. And the Chiringa, you can so go and check this. There's some really good articles out there on Chiringa. They are um, known as a kind of a sacred artifacts of the Irente people of around Uluru. And they talk of these as being objects left in the kind of in the creation time by powerful spirit beings that once walked the earth and that were involved in the creation of animals, humans, features of the landscape. And that these beings, some of them, they either left behind these artifacts or directly turned themselves into these Tringa artifacts. Now, Tringa, typically the ones that, they would say the more modern copies, they're still ancient, but more recent copies, replicas that the Aboriginal people make of them, are a kind of small, usually a kind of small oval or circular stone artifact engraved with symbols. And they ascribe to them life and intelligence. So these are conscious artifacts, repositories of knowledge, extremely sacred, not to be uh, touched or looked upon, by the general populace, only to be handled by the kind of the high elders, the clever fellas, and that would only be bought out for kind of ceremonial purposes. But the key there is that they are meant to be sentient, living, and associated with powerful beings that were here in the distant past, right? Well, that would be the pretty much the accurate take of, you know, an early humans encountering a bracewell probe, because you would have a sentient artifact probably would be a very small compact article artifact that would be you know astonishing to find and then if it could communicate with you well what would you think wouldn't you think it was some kind of spirit being wouldn't you think it was something maybe a star god or something you certainly have some lore that would build up around the the story now these things again are very sacred and supposed to be receptacles of knowledge which it would be because if it'd been monitoring us and recording events here for millions of years or even hundreds of thousands of years, however long, it would have an amazing store of knowledge and would be invaluable if it was sharing that with an elder or, you know, with a clever fella and helping the human species, you know, along, right? So in this case, we had one of these, one of these Chiringas that had been picked up a few decades ago in the desert by a camel trade. This is, at least this is the backstory that's been given, that 
a camel trader stumbled on one of these artifacts in a cave, picked it up, shouldn't really picked it up, but picked it up, didn't know what it was, and then tried to give it to the local tribe. The people didn't want anything to do with it. When he said what he had, they looked scared. They didn't want anything to do with it um, because they're aware of the taboos around this. In fact, there's deaf taboos and blinding taboos, right? So if you are not supposed to be handling one, you could be blinded or killed in the um, in the traditions of, of those people, right? So you probably wouldn't be in a great hurry to take one from this guy. Now, this then came to that family heirloom until uh, later on, a member of the family decided they wanted to go back to the traditional custodians, the Arendi people, and try to get it to them by giving it to someone who agreed to kind of make a bit of a quest of giving it back to them, basically. So this lady then tried to get it back to them, but whilst she was still trying to make these arrangements, she became very ill and needed someone to look after it. And at this point, she heard through her kind of a network, she heard of a lady called Valerie Barrow. Now, Valerie is a, what was, unfortunately, she's now deceased. She was a kind of a holistic therapist. What you think of as a very new ager. She's you know, psychic and very much, you know, into alternative stuff. She also happened to live in a house called Al Churinga. And Al Churinga is the kind of the creation time when the Churingas were left by these Al Churinga beings. So that coincidence wasn't lost on her. So she made contact and said, you know, would I, you know, obviously your name, the house, she's synchronicity, and, you know, would you be open to just temporarily looking after this artifact? It was all wrapped up in paper bark. She never looked on it, the taboo, she shouldn't look on it, shouldn't touch it. So as best as she could, she was trying to honor that. It was brought to her, she agreed to take it, it was brought to her like that. She put it into a shoebox, put it into her back room, thought nothing more of it, you know, obviously it's a bit strange, but, you know, popped in the back room, said, yeah, you can come and get it when you get back from your you know, hospital treatment. And then after a few weeks, she had a kind of direct voice to skull communication begin in which a consciousness announced itself in her mind as Alcharinga and as a star being with this information that was meant to be returned to humanity, a history that we didn't know about. And then over a period of time, she received, I suppose, what we might refer to as kinds of downloads or you know, um, telepathic communication. I mean, however you want to say it. I mean, today we have technologies ourselves to do this. So uh, once upon a time, we might have thought that was very woo. But quite frankly, these technologies are now being used in labs around the world, different ways to interact directly with the human brain, to send messages, to read the brain using AI tools and all the rest of it. So this isn't, this is like next generation technology. So it doesn't need to be next, next, next. It seems like we're not far off this ourselves. So this then got slightly weirder when a few months after this, whilst this is all still going on, a friend of hers is driving nearby and has in her car a very noted elder and healer called Jerry Bostock, an Aboriginal healer. He's also, everyone looks him up, he was also noticed as a playwright, an activist, all sorts of things, very respect, respected man. She mentions, I've got a friend lives around here called uh, Valerie that lives in a house called Algeringa. That, that name perks a bit of attention him of course as an aboriginal name and says well take me there so they end up going to the house and now you've got to imagine from valerie's perspective she's received this strange ancient aboriginal artifact and now an aboriginal elder is knocking at her door so i mean it wasn't the synchronicity wasn't lost on her of course and so she had a conversation with him and very soon she she just felt that he knew that that it was there so she said you know i've got this artifact yes i've got it and you know i haven't looked at it and it's in the other room and he kind of says you know it's men's business which is correct T technically only male uh, clever fellas and high elders were allowed to even go near these things so 
she shouldn't really have had it but of course she explained the circumstances and what happened done her best to keep it was and he seemed quite satisfied and he added on that they should go take it and go or she explained you know these contacts she was having so we should go to a site called Goss at Gosford which actually carry on and a site there he said there's a, a sacred site there also has some strange Egyptian glyphs that some of you may know of this controversial site the um the Gosford glyphs but that's a series of what seemed to be proto-Egyptian engravings in two walls on a rocky outcrop overlooking the bay of Gosford in New South Wales, Australia. And at that site, there is an Aboriginal sacred site, as well as these strange glyphs, which are controversial. Maybe they're ancient Egyptian, maybe they're not. There's a whole controversy around that. But he says, you know, I want us to go there because I think this is the right place to go and try and make another contact for information. So they do that. And... I would just very quickly say as well that this is when they go there this is just a few months after the major um, sighting at Gosford where there is a, an infamous major sighting at Christmas like it's 1994 Christmas that you have this mass sighting of a, of a UFO which is over the bay and people reported this kind of a sphere or slightly elongated craft with lights all over it that is hovering over the bay, this broken bay, and appears to suck something up from the water. They say the water is rushing up and then it drops the rest of the water and it, it leaves. And over a few days, this craft is seen around the Gosford area. So this is just a few months later. And I feel that there's a connection here, which we'll get to because they then are at Gosford. They have this another contact event this consciousness tells them all about how aliens have come in the past and all sorts of information. But where it gets really strange is after that down next download has stopped and they experience a collective time slip. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with in paranormal phenomena time slips. There's a very famous case with two English teachers who are at the site in the Garden of Versailles and they experience a time slip. They're walking through the garden. They see people in period clothes, including um, the Queen of France um, from from the one is but the one I think said let me cake she's them all there and thinks that there's some kind of play on and later on when they walk back out through this kind of mist they ask about it and there's there's not been anything on there wasn't anyone else there that they seem to have had this experience now it's something very like that that they find so instead of where they were just a moment ago now they're seeing that the forest around them has become more like jungle it's become more dense they're looking down across the water and they can see a saucer craft crashed into the water with another saucer hovering above it pulling beings out of the water and that there are beings on the beach humanoids various kinds of humanoids they're looking at it like you know what's going on but they look at each other and they also don't look entirely human and they realize that they seem to be themselves now transformed as well as the environment they also have an awareness that they are somehow connected to what they're seeing and start to have information in their heads about the arrival of a craft this craft being destroyed in orbit survivors coming down in a saucer craft one of them crashing the others obviously being uh, another one hovering over it that they they have an awareness of what has happened what this is they're seeing and on top of this jerry he happens to have had years before when he was in his teens he had had a dream of being on board a large white spaceship like inside white areas inside this spaceship with some panic going on people rushing beings rushing to escape and then as he escapes that he's aware of this craft exploding behind him and so now he says now i understand this is the connecting part of the dream and that i'm i was the pilot 
of the saucer craft that went into the water and that that's me that i'm down there drowning and he drowned he remembers drowning in the water bizarre of course all of this is bizarre like uh, any story of their contacts and experiences and the paranormal all of that very bizarre so but where it gets particularly interesting and where, where i come into this is that in the accounts that valley recorded and some of them published back in the 90s but she actually put out a book in 2003 now but over her website so and also that book she gives a lot of information about the details of this craft this arrival the survivors what they did the backstory and in fact there was so much information that when i looked through it i became aware that there was enough to essentially check whether this outringer character was a genuine alien consciousness making contact you know via this kind of what i would suggest is a bracelet probe and that its information was valid you know could be validated by objectively cross-referencing with known science now this isn't normally done with contact cases and with you know downloads or channeling and you know, all of these stuff that we have out there with this stories of you know human origins or aliens coming you know normally there's not much you can do to either validate or discount these tales it's kind of take it or leave it and as they say you know does it resonate with you that kind of thing right which is i think for me unsatisfying now i thought well look if there was enough in there that we could show that this was a real contact then i'd be willing to sort of put my name to it put it out there and really you know push for it to be known by everyone if there wasn't well no harm done waste of my time you know tuck it away go back to writing about uh you know the other forgotten origin stuff with my my work on the forgotten exodus series which you know I had the backing of graham hancock you know and him promoting it everything looked very good so i wasn't going to just chuck that in the bin you know for what might just be a silly story you know with no support so really when it got to the point where i had a sufficient amount of evidence i decided to go with it and so this is what the evidence that came out so i'll give you a bit of a breakdown in the backstory we are told that there is a giant silica kind of crystalline craft that is not made it's grown it's grown in a matrix on a distant planet what we would think of today keep in mind as something along the lines of 3d printing and again, this is this is from a contact case in 1994 before anyone was really talking about 3D printing, you know, particularly essentially a new age lady living in Australia who really isn't very inclined towards science, quite frankly. Um, but what they're describing in there is what we would think of today as something like 3D printing. And this craft is described as being essentially a large silica network. So you've got an AI craft, a living AI craft. So it being composed of silica mainly and a crystalline actually makes sense because we now know that large silicon networks appear to be the future for AI and that's the way that our own technologies again are heading. This craft arrives, it's here for a while, they offload some equipment, they begin a kind of a, a process of colonization and this is a process that's being handled with negotiations between them and another group who are currently the controllers of Earth. And there's a negotiation for a handover has occurred ahead of this that earth will be handed over from one collective of beings who are quite malicious to this other collective that we would think of as being a bit more a bit more i suppose service to others than less service to self and that they are going to be taking over the control of earth now unfortunately there's some shenanigans in the background there is a betrayal there's plans to seize this technology that's being offloaded and to seize genetic samples of these beings so there is a an attempt basically to derail this and the mothership is destroyed in orbit 
weapons it's described as being hit with the kind of weapons that entrain the frequency entrainment so is it essentially sort of like shattering like in the way that glass shatters if you're if you can get your voice to the right frequency, you can entrain the object. So it superheats it and it fragments it and vibrates it apart. And so the fi in final stages, it actually explodes like part of the nuclear bomb. It's just these power, you know, very powerful weaponry is used. But before it goes completely, a number of craft try to escape. Most of them are destroyed in space and a few make it down to the surface in Australia. Now, the next interesting thing, apart from that, so we have a few survivors, they've come down. There is also some other key things that are described which are on a major scale. Of course, that's a major scale. We have an enormous craft. Essentially, it's going to be, I would say, a couple of kilometers or so, you know, enormous crafts. It's 50,000 crew on board, vast, vast craft. Then there is also the claim that five years after the arrival of this craft, there is a second arrival another group of beings that are associated with this collective but they're not quite so friendly they're not colonists they're a bit more of a military wing and so they come in and they make it clear to the current holders of earth that you know you've broken this agreement you get off the planet or we begin a bombardment and this is no ordinary bombardment they describe that what they do is they utilize asteroids and they actually pull in asteroids and they throw them down and they throw them down to hit underground facilities. And so they say, we can crack open a planet, make your nukes look like pea shooters. And so they do that. They Once most of these beings have gone, not all of them do, so they begin a bombardment. And in several areas, they bring down asteroids, smash them into the earth. Well, that's a wild event. Of course, if that happened, we would know about it, surely. You know, we'd have all learned about that in school or college or somewhere, right? You know, asteroids bombarding Earth from all sides. Sounds absolutely wacky. How could we not have heard of that if that was real? So I was thinking that. But I thought, well, that's another event that should show up in the geological records if it's real. And then the other, the third, and I suppose in some ways the most profound claim that Alturinga has, is that the survivors, they come up with a kind of a plan B. They say, well, they can't colonize. They're not going to bring Earth back into their collective by the way that they originally intended. They say, well, instead, they do a kind of a, a colonization by stealth in that they decide that they'll, what they'll do is they'll use the remnants of their genetic engineering technologies to modify a hominin that is already able to reside on this planet because they themselves are struggling. They have been hit before they can finish the, the work on their own forms because they are not suited to Earth. They have the problems you'd imagine you'd have if you tried to live on an alien planet. That they have been adapting themselves en route using genetic therapies so that they will be able to live on the terrestrial environment. They haven't completed these. They are being killed by uh, the sunlight is, is wrong for them, the radiation is wrong for them, bacteria in the water is wrong for them, uh, some of them are struggling to breathe. You know, they're, they're having all these problems. They're dying off. They know that they can't, they're not going to survive long term. But what they can do is modify a hominin that can survive here and make it more like themselves and it to be essentially the representative of their collective on Earth. Now, they make the point of saying that, you know, we're essentially doing this with the medical kits on the sources, that the main, you know, the genetic engineering technologies on the mothership have almost all been lost in the attack. So this isn't easy. So they, they describe this is not an easy process for them, that they have, again, they have realistic kind of problems you'd have in that scenario, that the initial experiments do not go well. But this is some of these first generation are born like, throwbacks covered in hair and more like gorillas than than what we think of as ourselves as humans 
and that these can't survive either, and that any of their offspring can't breathe the air. He said, so their own, that it won't work that way, and that these new first generation doesn't work. So there's an ongoing experiment. Eventually it's successful, and they create a new hominin, which has a larger head and less hair and all the things that are familiar to us. So they create the first ancestral Homo sapiens, right? So you've got these three mega claims, three massive claims in here, right? An enormous crystalline ship, uh, bombardment of asteroids, the modifying of hominins to give us the first Homo sapiens. I mean, this is wild stuff, right? If it was real, apart from being profound and changing everything, if it was real, there should be evidence to substantiate this. Now, I took quite a while to go through the available records to see if there was anything like this, and I'll be perfectly honest, uh, we had some clues because there's two dates that Valerie puts out there. One is, one is he says, somewhere towards 900,000 years ago, but I also saw that she'd mentioned 700,000 years ago, somewhere else on her website, that to do with how they view time or something like that. So I thought, well, okay, I'll use that as the, um, the, the window of time in which to look. So somewhere between 700 to 900,000 years ago. I know that sometimes people say with context experiences, you know, time is hard and on the dimensions. So I don't know. Well, well, I'll give it that range. It's a big range. But we'd see if there was something in there. So I was quite astonished, absolutely astonished, to find that there is a, a long-standing mystery in science. In fact, it goes back over 130 years, a mystery called the Australasian tech-type mystery. And that actually involves some kind of object that broke up and ended up throwing debris across about 12,000 kilometers of Earth's surface, all the way from Indochina down to Antarctica. Billions and billions of tons of a glassy melt debris, highly silica in nature. In fact, it's typically around about 75% silica, around about 12% aluminium, with about 5% iron, and there's sort of magnesium and some titanium and some other chemicals in there. But this, this material obviously is highly silica. So well, that's, that's kind of wild, because now you're talking about, you know, we're looking for a, a vast object that would have been made of almost entirely of silica, a living AI craft. So the AI was throughout the whole of the, the, the hull, you know, the whole thing was a living AI. So in other words, it'd be mostly silica, not entirely. So something like in that range, you know, 75 odd percent, that's mostly silica. And now, so we have that, we have a mystery as to exactly the origins of this material. And to also get a date, and the date on that, the most accurate dating at the moment is 788,000 years ago. Well, so that's nicely in the middle of that, that range. So on top of that, I think, well, okay, so you've got this astonishing mystery, and I hadn't expected to find anything, particularly as we're talking about so long ago, for even if a craft or something had broke up, you know, it'd be gone, you know, what chance have we got to find it? And so it turns out there's this mystery, billions of tons of debris from an anomalous event. We'll go into the, the theories on that in a minute, but so we've got that one. So I was thinking, well, that's, that's a nice kind of hit. And then the second one was the multi-directional bombardment. I think, well, that's kind of a wild one, never heard of that. I thought I would have if it was something that had actually occurred, right? So what it turned out, the reason why I hadn't heard of it is because until 2016, no one had. In 2016, a team of geologists uncovered evidence for a global asteroid bombardment with significant objects impacting purportedly in Canada, down in Central America, in Tasmania, and in Laos. 
and like potentially some other sites, but we know, oh, and also potentially in Antarctica. So we have this multiple events. And so, and what's the dating? Turns out it's in the range 770 to 790,000 years ago, the error, the error margin. They said all of these objects bombarded. And they said they, they suspect they all impacted at the same time because the date range overlaps. They suspect they're part of a singular event. Well, well that's, that's wild. A singular event, massive objects pummeling us from all directions. To add to how strange that, that sort of shower is, you might think, okay, well, what if it's you know, one comet and it's breaking up, you know, and the debris is, is, is showering down. Well, no, turns out that the chemical composition of the material at each of the sites is unique. So in other words, these were, these were completely different objects that all happened to just come in and start pounding the earth at the same time, but from different directions. Think about that. The last time we had something like that happening really was the late heavy bombardment, you know, in the formative period of the solar system when there was a lot of debris flying around. Now we expect one of these big impacts every sort of, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 years, where it is. We certainly don't expect several of them at once. That is a wild, wild event. So I think, well, that's, that's now essentially two for two, right? For the potential at the very least. We've got two for two. We've got the dating on some kind of bizarre silica debris shower, um, the dating on a multi-directional asteroid impact event. And then I think, well, okay, well, the other, the other one that we have to look at, of course, is the origins of Homo sapiens then. You know, is there anything there? Fortunately enough, of course, my previous book was on the origins of, of humans. So I already had a head start on that. I already had a good knowledge on the literature. And I know that in the last few years, we'd had a major revolution because up until about five or 10 years ago, it was widely believed that our lineage, you know, the modern human lineage had split away from Neanderthals somewhere around 400,000 years ago. And so that we had a shared ancestor around that time. And then a little bit before that, you had ancestor X, which is kind of the, the unknown missing link ancestor that gave rise to all uh, large-brained humans, right? And nobody knew what that was. It's thought of as probably something like Homo erectus, if not Homo erectus, or something of that type. Certainly back in 2003, when Valerie Brower book, or 1994, when she had these events, that was, that was what everyone believed. Right, well, now that's completely changed. Due to the discovery of Denisovans and the mapping of the Denisovan genome and increased mapping of the Neanderthal genome and the discovery of the earliest hominin DNA at a site called uh, Cueva de los Huesos, the Cave of Bones in Spain, where we retrieved 450,000-year-old DNA, we've been able to completely rewrite the story of human origins. And as well as that, different proteins that have been identified and there's a number of other discoveries that are relevant to this. But basically, what it's turned out is Ancestor X lived around 800,000 years ago. That this split between Denisovans, Neanderthals, and us, particularly in the Denisovan and Neanderthal lineages and our lineages, those occur somewhere close to 770,000 years ago. Well, hang on a minute. Isn't that, isn't that funny? So now we have the strange arrival of multiple large-brained hominins occurring right in the time frame that we've already got this shower of billions of tons of weird melt glass and the multi-directional impacts, this improbable meteorite storm. And now we've got that the humans have changed right there in that time span. 
essentially all three of the big claims that are in this message. Now, if you ask people in this sort of the paranormal research or even in the, the sciences who take seriously the idea of anomalous phenomena and, and whatnot, if you ask them, what would ever validate contact with a discarnate consciousness, whether alien or whether a ghost or whether a god or whatever, what do they consider we have to do to show that that's real? The general consensus is that it should be able to provide information that wasn't previously known to the recipient, but these of a, a fairly profound nature and which can later be validated scientifically and objectively to show that this party has extraordinary knowledge that humans don't have and that is real and thus validates that the messenger is real. That's the standard. That's the standard that they give. And so if in this case that's exactly what we have, well, that is, that is the textbook validation of a contact, that we have, we have had contact, that there is an intelligence that knew more about our darned planet and our history than we did and can provide that to us and then just wait a few years for us to catch up with the science. Because at that time, none of that could have been validated. Right, and that's the key. Because someone say, "Okay, could you cherry pick this? Could you put this story together? You know, sci-fi, and you know, put it out there and have people believe?" Well, no, because at that time, nowhere would you have found that information. Again, keep in mind, only 2016 when we discovered this multi-directional bombardment, and it's only in recent years we've got the really accurate dating on, on um, the tectite storms, and you know, more details on that. And again, only in the last few years that we've had this redating on the human origins. None of that could have been written up and known at the time. Indeed, you know, Valerie makes no attempt to do that. You know, she's not, as I say, she's not scientifically inclined. She just tells the, the details of what happened to them, what happened to Jerry, and what happened to the dozens of other people who basically became involved with this account. And then several dozen people that are involved. Some of them are still around. Unfortunately, Jerry and Valerie have passed on. Uh, I met Valerie. I went to her house. I was in Australia. I had the chance to communicate with her number of times unfortunately not jerry because he passed on before i was aware of this i have spoken to people that knew jerry and there's potential that i may end up in contact with his cousin from my understanding so i'm doing my best with that but so there's a lot of the other people that i have had some contact with so there's still other people involved in this case now if you think about that so if we have got a genuine discernible objectively confirmed contact we really don't need any of this stuff from government disclosures. We really don't need that because what we're looking for is, is something you validated that anyone can kind of really get their head around. And I say, I'm not saying it's easy, but they can get their head around and can look at objective evidence. Right now, let me go a little bit more into why this evidence is extraordinary, because it's all well and good to say, OK, we had this bombardment. We, you know, we've got this debris you know, we've got this, you know, the emergence of humans. But if we drill down further, are these events themselves independently strange? Are they anomalous? You know, is there any chance that this is just weird coincidence? I mean, again, you'd have to really be throwing a lot of all sixes and your dice to say that this is, you know, sheer coincidence. But let's just say, you know, that it was. Is there anything else to make some strange? Well, as we've already touched on with the multi-directional impact, this is beating all the cosmic odds. We know that we shouldn't be seeing we should not be seeing multiple objects coming in from different directions at once. That straight away is anomalous, is weird and unexpected, right? Now, 
we also know that there is something very funny happens with one of these objects that breaks up above Antarctica into apparently breaks into about five pieces and one of these at least one of these pieces is very large it is calculated to have left like an anomaly an impact site about 200 kilometers by 200 kilometers wide so this is an enormous hole punched in the ice and other ones another four pieces came down into the ice and I think that this object was on the scale of the asteroid or the uh, comet that killed off the dinosaurs so something you know several kilometers in diameter not not some little you know little meteorite and that this this object you know well, we don't know what it was but the reason why it didn't cause the same level of cataclysm as you see with the chicksal of impact is because it was in an ice age so rather than being you know enormous tsunamis racing out fires there was ice there was a lot of ice that ice took a lot of the energy absorbed what would have been tsunamis the sea levels globally did rise significantly from the melt um, but it was not as devastating as it could have been of course got all these other impacts so bear in mind this would have been a, a time of cataclysm you certainly would have had mega quakes and firestorms and plasma storms and stuff happening from all these impacts so an unbelievable time to be alive now what else is happening at that time well well it just turns out that that's the last time we have a complete geomagnetic reversal right on that time between 780 to 790,000 years ago it's dated the last full geomagnetic reversal so that's happening at the same time lowering of earth shields cosmic rays going in plasma phenomena all sorts of crazy stuff in the skies and we also have the disruption of earth's climate cycles and that's the elongating of the warm periods occurs and an anomalous event still not understood why suddenly we see these long deep-rooted climate cycles are completely disrupted and these have been important to the rise of humans because these these lengthy warm periods have given us the opportunity to become civilized if you had short periods we couldn't do it right you need time you need time to also to grow in numbers in ice ages you're not going to have billions of people networking and all the rest of it so this is also a crucial change almost like terraforming right so you have all these events going on at once and again begs belief to be one of the people at the time looking at this primitive human looking at the skies and seeing these these objects arcing in and you know the plasma storms and firestorms and you know quakes on like a you know 15 on the Richter scale and just unbelievable unbelievable time so what else is strange then well when we look closer at the Australasian tech type phenomena that gets pretty weird pretty quick you, know, you can look at the history of this that back in the days there was all sorts of theories were thrown at this you know, people thought you know was it formed by an ancient glass making culture uh, was it formed by an antimatter event you know had it been shot out some super volcano um, for years there was all kinds of theories about how Australian tectonic melt glass formed and how it ended up distributed across a 12,000 mile uh, arc across the planet now back in the sort of 1930s 1940s this had this had broken down to just two major camps and on the one side, you had mainly NASA guys. You had a lot of NASA guys. You had, you had rocket scientists that got on board. You got all the engineers. And these guys, they all were suggesting that this material had to have come from space and that most likely it had come from the moon. On the other side, you had the remainder of kind of the academic community 
who was saying, well, no, this must be from an impact event somewhere in Indochina, and that this material has been thrown up in this kind of cataclysmic impact, and that some of it has gone, you know, really far in the atmosphere, essentially to the edge of space, and has kind of rained back down. And so there was this long-standing debate between the two groups. The reason why that debate continued is because on both sides, there were points that were, you know, superior and inferior. So they can neither could really say that we were right. It just was an ongoing argument. Now, the NASA guys, they basically said, well, look, you know, you've got this homogenous find glass. And so if people aren't familiar, you've got different types of glass. If you look in nature, uh, you'll see examples, what we can give, well, nature and artificial glasses. Homogenous find glass is glass that you see in your house. The glass in your window. So that means glass that's very well mixed. All the chemicals are very, you know, they've been heated over a period of time, they've been mixed, so it's chemically pretty identical. Wherever you sample that glass across a piece of glass, you know, it'll be pretty much chemically identical. And the fining process removes sort of volatiles and gases and stuff. So you won't really see bubbles. You, know, you don't see bubbles in your window glass, not normally. So that's all part of the fining process as well. So in nature, we see homogenous fine glass from volcanic volcanic activity, right? So volcanic glasses are a type of natural homogenous fine glass. Why is that? Because they bubble away in a caldera, very similar to the way that we bubble glass in a crucible, right? Because you, you mix the material and you fine it. So that's happening naturally in a volcanic caldera. So we understand that. Now, there's other natural glasses, of course. We have fulgurite, which is a very strange lightning glass, which is very unlike that. It's just basically using melted sand. It's been quickly melted into strange kind of lightning arc shapes. And we also have impact glasses. So uh, basically asteroid meteorite impact glasses. Those are, again, they are different to the modernous fine. These are heterogeneous and unfined glasses because what you have instead is material that is melted very quickly and cools very quickly. So it's full of bubbles, it's full of partially melted material, it's chemically identical to the crater rock around it, and it's usually found in and around the crater site. Um, what it's very similar to in artificial glass is nuclear blast glass. So once you look at trinitite and stuff, you'll see that trinitite is also a very foamy, bubbly glass made of uh, partial melt, melt, and organic inclusions. So very similar to impact glasses and so for the same reason forms in a very quick high energy event and so there's not time for the homogeneity and the fining process to occur well when you look at tectites when you look at this australian tectite you find a very very homogeneous fined glass now this was the problem this is what got this camp really split so the nasa guys were saying well look you have to be able to explain how this glass has been you know, mixed and fined in, in a, what you're saying is a very quick event. This is an impact. How does that happen? You're breaking a number of you know, laws here, like this it's called uh, Moses' law, which is to do with um, bubbles, well, spherical uh, bubbles and gas and whatnot moving through viscous liquids and stuff like that. So they say you have to be able to, you know, understand it in the context of these laws. And so they said, well, look, we think what happened is is that on the moon that there was a volcano and it formed volcanic glass maybe a huge glass sheet and then an asteroid hit that glass and dislodged it melted it you know threw it up into the atmosphere threw it down into space and that it headed towards the earth 
and even you know a sort of swarm or large piece you know headed towards the earth and then it rained down and that that's kind of the explanation for how it was already fine and homogenous the inter the other guys on the other side they had no real good mechanism so they had a problem this is why they were, were not able to win this argument so and the other thing was it's very clear it was from space because again the NASA guys are saying well look you know work in this you know field and we know that we can create these shapes you can see these tectite buttons they're called if you look at tectite buttons that these have a nose cone shape so they say look we know how that's made we've done this in the nasa ames research lab we've recreated these and we know that they have formed at moving at just below the speeds necessary to escape you know the the earth's atmosphere and that they have to be formed from small cold hard spheres of glass that are already homogeneous and fine that have come in at gentle angles from space at these fairly low speeds, certainly a lot slower than asteroids coming in direct to Earth normally, that have skipped along the edge of the atmosphere and have melted on the front edge and the material is pulled backwards, giving these kind of, like I say, these bullet shapes. So these are the only way that can form. So they know that they've come in space. And in fact, in some of the papers they point out, this is what you expect to see with a decaying satellite. So like say if there was a natural satellite, if they posited natural satellite. So, so this would be, had to be a mother, the mother object would be some kind of satellite that broke up in orbit and that the molten debris, you know, cooled in space and that you have these spheres. So remember in a vacuum, liquids pool into a sphere. So it pulled into these spheres and cooled because it's super cold. And that then these pieces then skip along the edge of the atmosphere. They have secondary melting into these aerodynamic shapes and then they fell. And they fall mostly across southern Australia. They're fairly limited in the strewn, what's called the strewn field. They're fairly limited to southern Australia and Java, which is right up a long way away from southern Australia. So weirdly enough, they're not in between. Right, they're not in between. The rest of the types are dumbbells, spheres, discs, and other shapes, which are all understood as being formed within the Earth's atmosphere. So again, so you've got a mystery there. Well, why is that then? Why have we got two groupings of tectites there from space and in the middle, they're all formed in ways that we know are for in-atmosphere formation. So there's something very strange about that too. So they said, well, this, this has to be, this has to be coming from space, right? So then on the other side, the impact people, you know, they're desperately trying to explain this, but then they get a lucky, they get a lucky win because we recover material from the moon and hey presto it is inc incompatible with the tectite formation it, it does not fit and on top of that as pointed out by a very 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 noted research at the time there's a big problem with this theory of a swarm coming from the moon because any swarm of tectites traveling from the moon uh, would be basically disrupted by the solar gravity and solar rays so you'd have to be, you'd be so dense like a single object to get here in which case when it broke up it would only rain down over basically of a few kilometers or it would be pulled apart and this swarm would essentially rain down over the entire planet and also would be going off into space and hitting everywhere else still be flowing around up there so, the, so this doesn't stack up so on two two areas it didn't stack up it could not be a swarm from the moon could not be a single rock from the moon and it also the materials on the moon were were not a fit and we also understand that geological activity on the moon didn't fit with everything a volcano that had formed at the right time indeed it's believed that the volcanic activity ended long 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 before any events you know 780 odd thousand years ago so it just didn't fit so they essentially folded a few people struggled on still arguing this theory but essentially they folded at that point but they did say they said well look you know you've still got to explain the anomalies that we could explain and that you couldn't. And that was kind of their, their parting, you know, retort 
to the impact hypothesis people. But what we have today is essentially a kind of a broad consensus that built up around, well, it must then be by default, just a natural impact event. They didn't really need to explain the persisting anomalies. They have tried to over the years, but they didn't need to to win because there wasn't any other hypothesis on offer, right? Well, one reason why they wouldn't be is because any other hypotheses would be kind of extraordinary because you would need to, as one NASA guy sort of pointed out, you could imagine an object coming from somewhere deeper in space, but what, what kind of object would come from deep, deep space and would happen to be captured by Earth's gravity? And what kind of object like that would then somehow superheat in orbit and fragment into this homogeneous fine glass? It just seemed absurd, totally absurd, because what natural object would be like that, right? So that wasn't really even seriously explored. And so now, of course, today, we know that interstellar objects are real. Actually, that's a starting point. So we know that interstellar objects are real. So they didn't know that back then. Otherwise, I think the NASA guys, who knows, maybe they would have suggested that, that hang on a minute, there's a whole class of objects that are unlike in solar system objects. And they knew that this had to have been because we don't see asteroids that are 75% silica, right? The, the absolute max of content for an asteroid is only 60%, right? So we know that it wouldn't have been an in, in solar system object. But of course, it could have been an interstellar object, right? But then you've still got this issue of, okay, so imagine there's interstellar objects that have an unusual composition, which again, you know, even just to posit this is an interstellar object would make it the first interstellar object known, which in itself is wild, right? Because it's long before Oumuamua, right? And it's also been analyzed, it's on record, you can buy it. I've got some in my house, you can buy some, you can go online and buy it, right? So that's wild in itself, the fact that we might have this debris already in hand from interstellar space. So that's wild. But then think about it, what kind of interstellar object would end up in orbit? You know, that would all the chances of it coming from deep space, and, and usually these should be coming in at faster speeds than in solar system objects. Again, as Avi Loeb points out, that's one of the characteristics of an interstellar object. How would it end up captured in Earth's gravity, especially that size? You know, we have no no belief that Earth can capture objects that are kilometers across. We sometimes capture bus-sized rocks, okay? You know, Jupiter perhaps, but Earth doesn't. So you've got a very strange set of events then. If we captured a natural satellite like that, that just happens to be made of some kind of silicate glass, right? Sounds like an odd object. And then it somehow, it superheats in space to liquid and forms these spherical drops that cool and then come in to hit the atmosphere. Well, that's a wacky, wacky object at that point. So in other words, you start to immediately see that the explanation that is something that can park itself in orbit and that is being manufactured because you can't otherwise explain it. And also it has to have a power source, something that can explode, something that can superheat it in space. Again, space is bloody cold. Things don't superheat without additional forces acting upon them. So when you go drilling into that, you see that this object is unbelievably anomalous. And that the material, and again, now to, to further up the what we touched on before, this spread of this material, and why why you have this strange phenomenon of just buttons in Java and buttons down in southern Australia, but not across the rest of the strewn field? Well, imagine if you will. So this craft, this object, would have been in orbit above Indochina when the attack began. And at that point, when it exploded, as it's heading southward towards Australia, it explodes. 
material is thrown in all directions, but particularly you're going to have interest, you're going to have the material that is thrown forwards and backwards along that orbital path. And a lot of it is going to continue along on the orbital path. So in the existing direction of the craft. So the bulk of it continues heading south. But you also get debris thrown straight down, large chunks. And if you look at the, the sites in Indochina, you find in that area, you find not just these tectites um, of the spheres and dumbbells, stuff you don't, and as I say in Java, the buttons, but you also find Muangnong tectite. Muangnong tectite, again, people can go and look this up later, is sheets, vast melt sheets of twisted and folded glass that is a mixture of the terrestrial rocks and whatever this object was. And this has been formed, as one geologist points out, this has been formed in plasma storms. This has been formed in. Oh no. Hopefully he'll be back. He's having a connection issue, it seems. Welcome back, Bruce. Um, Third Eye, are you there? Yeah, just wait for his re re reception to reconnect. Just give it a couple seconds. All right. Thank you. Should be back. Bruce, uh, do you want to signal with the emojis? That helps. Otherwise, um, it happens. And we're back. Yep, there he goes. I see him. Sorry, can you hear me? We hear you. I remember you were talking about the crystals, kind of like the silica rocks. I remember that part. Okay, so yeah, basically I was trying to explain the way the evidence points to where this explosion happened and how it happened and the signature for it, which is when you look in Indochina, you can you basically find a particular kind of glass called muongnong tectites and so spread across that region all the way basically all the way from sort of thailand through laos um across malaysia and all the way to southern china you've got melt sheets called muongnong tectite and they know it's part of the same australasian tectite strewn field but this is unlike all the other pieces this is not these like large chunks a piece like 25 kilo chunks and stuff right and so this is layered, folded pieces of glass. And so we know today how this kind of glass forms because analysis done on the glass sheets down in the Atacama Desert, the Atacama melt glass, which people might be familiar with, that has concluded that it was the result of a comet aerial burst event in um, about 12,000 years ago. And it causes these kind of plasma storms, which melt the, melt the, the, you know, the ground below and also cause twisting and folding within the sort of plasma storm. So you end up with this particular kind of melt glass. Well, that is what we see in Indochina. And we see this same, but we see on an enormous scale, we see it spread right across from southern China down to, to Thailand. That's thousands of miles. So you've got to think about it. So this is huge pieces of glass. And so they know that these can't have been thrown far. And indeed, so that's why most of the, the consensus hypothesis suggests the impact, there must have been a comet impact or some sort of impact in Indochina because this glass is you know, enormous pieces spread all around the area. So this must be ground zero in their model. This must be ground zero, but there's no crater, right? And also the crater would have to be enormous. If you think about it, a crater that stretches from Southern China to Thailand, that would be wild. And yet, you know, you don't see it, but you've got all this glass that has to be what you call proximal ejector. In other words, the glass that's at the impact site and it's spread right across, you know, 25 kilo pieces of glass don't fly far. Like that's a really basic concept. And on, on top of that, when you look at this type of glass, say it's the signature of aerial burst events. 
So in other words, if you think about it, you've got a craft that's come across in orbit over Indochina. It's destroyed in orbit there. There's an explosive event. Chunks are propelled downwards. Large pieces break the atmosphere first, and those then explode, and they explode like nuclear bombs. So you get then plasma storms, vortexes, vacuum chambers, right? Actually scouring of the surface below, throwing up material, melting the surface, you know, swirling melt, and you get this occurring again and again across Southeast Asia. Bang, bang, bang! You've got a series of like nuclear explosion type events across there, right to southern China. These chunks are coming in. And we know from the analysis done by this American geologist, I forget the name, but he's done the analysis on and points out that in one case, he finds pieces of tech, pieces of this Muangong tektite that have hardened and then a new hot piece of melt has landed on it. He says that is the smoking gun for this because that means you've got a second heating event. That can't happen in a singular impact. So in other words, you've had an aerial burst and then he says a few hours later, another piece has broken the atmosphere and it has splashed material onto already cooled Muangong tektites. And he says, that's the smoking gun for that. So he says, in other words, all of this melt there, that is ground zero, but not for an impact. That's ground zero for the aerial bursts. And then what you get then is in Java. So you've got the two ways. You've got materials going along the orbital path south, but also some of it goes back. You know, So some of it is going against that direction so that's so some of that falls across in island southeast asia so you've got the tectite button so some of that's traveled through space and has come down there and then a lot most of the bulk material is following that orbital path so it goes much further and goes down across australia and then as it travels now you imagine in your mind you've got this craft is blown to bits so you've got chunks of it that still remain and now they start breaking atmosphere so they're breaking atmosphere across australia across the vast continent of australia and so the other funny thing is, and tektite collectors will tell you, the funny thing about tektites in Australia is you'll find a cluster. You might find, well, they used to, most of them being found now, but they used to find clusters. So you'd find maybe thousands of tektites across an area of, you know, of, of a, several kilometers, and then none for hundreds of kilometers or thousands of kilometers. Hang on a minute. If this is being thrown out in the waves that you expect from an impact, that shouldn't be like that. What you expect with aerial bursts is precisely this because you'll get a circle where the material falls. Once the aerial burst event happens, the melt will fall in a circle beneath it. And so that's exactly how you find tectites on the ground in Australia. So these are signatures of aerial bursts. So aerial bursts are happening all across Australia. And you imagine when one of these comes in, they explode, they throw out melt within the atmosphere and molten, molten glass traveling in the atmosphere forms distinct uh, morphologies. So basically you'll have teardrop shapes, dumbbell shapes, discs, spheres, um, and other basically shapes which are, are consistent with spinning molten glass moving through atmosphere, right? What you don't see is the tectite buttons that we touched on earlier that look like bullet, uh, front of a bullet, because those only form in space. But those fall at the edges of that that fragmenting debris field in space. So these smaller pieces that they travel further and they start falling, they fall at, across southern Australia. So you've got different components of this event. You've got the major explosion up in Indochina, you've got the ground melt, you've got the aerial burst signatures, and then the more of the debris swarm is starting to break atmosphere as it travels south. And then the final edges of this event are in Antarctica. 
where you get the what's called microtectites particularly which is the, the smallest hottest little pieces that travel the furthest and those four in antarctica where they're most commonly found also found in, in ocean samples so they find a lot of these microtectites. So that is the extent of it. So you've got 12,000 long debris field, and you can, you can basically almost picture in your mind the way this breaking up object, this, this satellite object, and its debris field is continuing in these orbital paths, decaying orbital paths until these little pieces are breaking atmosphere, skipping along the edge of the atmosphere, and having this secondary melting. And indeed, of course, as they point out in the analysis, this stuff has to have formed in space. It's formed in a vacuum. It's very dry, has almost no water in it, which again is a signature for forming in a vacuum. And it also takes these spherical forms, which is again a signature of melt in a vacuum in space. It solidifies almost instantly without crystallization. It means it's intense cold, i.e. space. So there's a lot of reasons why the NASA guys point out this has to be in space. And so you have this vast debris field that falls from this event. No impact crater. Now, if you take the consensus view, they expect to see a crater about 100 kilometers across, and it's going to be a really young crater geologically. Keep in mind the Chicxulub crater, so 65 million years old, it's still visible in the Yucatan. You know, it's easily detectable, right? It's visually detectable, scans detect it, you know, anomalies, all the rest of it is massive. Um, look at Chesapeake Bay from the US. Chesapeake Bay, which also is associated with its own shroom field, that is an enormous, you know, over 100 kilometer site and has a smaller shroom field. Right, than the, the Australasian, smaller. So they're like, well, it should be bigger than the Chesapeake Bay crater, right? So it, it's not visible. So there's something's very wrong. It should be much younger, you know, it should be totally visible. No sign of it. So in other words, there is no impact. There is no impact. This is an object that breaks up in space. So back to what we've been talking about. So now we've got a load of material from a, a fine homogeneous glassy object, enormous, that somehow explodes in orbit rains material right across, you know, 12,000 kilometers of Earth's surface. And it's just wild, you know, it's got the silica content that we expect, you know, obviously there's metals in it and all the rest of it, but very wild. So you're thinking once you've got that, you've got another very anomalous event. So now we're, you know, two for two, if you like, you've got two very anomalous events. You've got this multi-directional impact event that shouldn't have happened. You've got this bizarre, enormous, weird object blowing up a space that shouldn't have happened. And then third, we have, of course, the emergence of hom of the sorry the early humans from hominins. Well, that is a kind of a weird event too. Turns out. Now you couldn't just say on your own. People say to me, "Oh, you just um, do you know God of the gaps with this human evolution thing." Well, no, because God of the gaps series is like you look at it and say, "I think that's weird, therefore it's aliens." Well, I'm saying no. There's aliens have contacted us, and they're saying that they've done something weird. This is the opposite. So I've gone looking to see if what they say is true, rather than looking at the human evolution and saying, that's weird, could it be aliens, right? Which is the reverse to everyone else out there who usually says this weird stuff about humans, I think aliens did it, right? And that is that kind of alien of the gaps theory. So when I look at this, again, of course, the other thing about this is it's all very specific to a time. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, if there's anything weird, I'll fit it into this theory. It has to be timed with these other events. And so we know that it has to be timed with uh, what's happening in that period around 788,000 years ago with these tectites. We know that already the multi-directional impacts, they time with it, as does the other stuff, the geological stuff, you know, the, um, the climate cycle stuff and the Earth's magnetic field reversing, which are believed to be associated with those impacts. So this is, these are linked events. So now we wanna know, what about the origins of Homo sapiens? You know, is there something strange there that would fit with this claim in this message that they modified our ancestors. 
Well, it turns out that yes, yes, there blooming well is. In fact, there are several lines of evidence now that point to something very, very strange happening that leads to us. Now, the first one that you, many of you may have heard of because in the past it's been covered in you know, ancient astronaut kind of theories and a number of people talked about this. And this is the, the chromosome two fusion event. Now, Lloyd Pye probably was one of the same people who talked about this and unfortunately passed on a researcher of ancient mysteries who I had the pleasure of communicating with long ago before he passed sadly cancer. But he used to talk about, about chromosome two. But unfortunately at the time, although he went into sort of a lot of depth and anyone knows his, um, everything we know is wrong. And I think also his book, Everything We Know is Still Wrong. He talks about this, but, but we now know more on the dating and exactly the anomalies around this. So it turns out there was a British biologist and he wanted to nail down, when did this happen? Because we know that the, so let me just preface that. Chromosome two appears to be a chromosome made of the fusion of two ancestral primate um, chromosomes that have end-to-end -end fused, right? So when you look at that, they know that that has to have occurred a little bit before, at least a little bit before the emergence of Denisovans, Neanderthals and our ancestors, because all of these lineages have the fusion. So, and all the other primates, they have they have 48 chromosomes and all of these other hominids had 46. So us and our near relatives, 46. So they knew that it has to occur before the split, but did it happen before, just before the split or did it happen when we broke away from chimps and other primates? That was the question. So this British biologist, he, I don't know his name, but he looked into this and doing the, the chemical analysis for when the telomeres stopped um, evolving and changing, mutating, he was able to kind of chemically deduce that this fusion had occurred somewhere around 750,000 years ago or so. Well, because we know now that the the split for, for Denisovan Neanderthals have happens closer to 770,000 years ago, in other words, it pulls it back to that because it has to be before that split. So he's saying somewhere around then, we now know that it has to have happened closer to 770. Cool. So that's, in other words, right on when all these new hominins are appearing. So chromosome two is obviously implicated in this. What's strange about chromosome two? Well, there's a few things. First of all, normally when chromosomes fuse, this is a catastrophic error. And this, this would have a lot of problems you know for reproductive reasons and potentially could cause other you know malformations in a fetus rarely would that be an okay thing to happen maybe neutral you definitely wouldn't think it was a good thing to happen so you would expect it to be reabsorbed into the background population so it'd be a freak mutation all the other people alive would have the correct chromosomes so even if this person could reproduce which normally they probably couldn't you'd expect with chromosome errors that even if they could, that, you know, that they would have a re recessive problem that would be absorbed into the background population, this tiny, you know, anomaly, one person and their children married to, you know, mating with someone that didn't have the anomaly and a recessive problematic trait. Well, that's not how it plays out, because instead there is a total replacement of all hominins on the planet with now with these beings that have this fusion all of them all the rest go right they all go today everyone who hasn't got some kind of you know recent birth anomaly about their chromosomes has this fusion and has this number of chromosomes what the hell goes on to towards that well there's a few thoughts the experts say well look for that to occur 
there's basically three constraints that make that likely to happen. And that is one, that this change occurs in a small isolated population and it must happen in more than one individual in a breeding population, again, cut off from others, and bestows extraordinary benefits, right? So now this is supposed to be a problem. Keep in mind, it's meant to be a, a serious bloody problem. Instead, it's giving us amazing benefits and it's happening in a small group that's isolating other people. Oh, almost like in a lab, almost like in a lab, right? A small group isolated, breeding with each other and that get this new strange upgrade. Right, so we have that, that chromosome two in itself, very strange. And also there's additions and deletions of information at the fusion site in comparison to the, what we see these chromosomes in other primates and including some, a category of changes, which I'm gonna to touch a bit more now, human accelerated regions. And some of these HARs are also associated with the fusion site. Now, HARs are, again, I think probably the most, one of the most important areas for this, almost certainly, that just in the last few years, it has turned out that deep in our, deep in our what was once considered non, you know, sorry, junk DNA, which is now known as non-coding DNA, Deep in there, we find that there are segments of code which have remained stable for tens and hundreds of millions of years. It's so stable that you know, rarely if ever change, and these are across all mammals, right? So we find almost identical segments across all the mammals because they do something so fundamental that when they change, most of the time, the organism dies or it just can't reproduce. Now this really, the really to just, Near, like so really sort of portray this the first human accelerated region that was discovered which is har1 was nicknamed as they did a they did a contrast to this little segment now this segment is just 118 dna letters long that's very short much shorter than a gene very short and so they contrasted it between humans chimps and chickens now the chicken and the chimp They've been separate in evolutionary terms for 300 million years. That's a long time, right? So in that time, how much has changed? Well, it turns out that on that segment of code, two letters have successfully changed. So that gives us a, a successful mutation rate of one DNA letter per 150 million years of evolution. Well, I'd say that's pretty darn stable. Now, when they took that same segment in chimps and compared it to ours as humans, they were in for a bit of a shocker because it turned out instead of the zero changes that they expected, 18 letters had changed. So when they ran the statistics, and the good thing about this is that the biostatistician who found this is deeply involved in writing the software to kind of do the analysis on biostatistics. So she creates off to check this and Kane's inclusion, there was essentially a 0% chance of this occurring by any understood evolutionary means that something had changed the very workings of, of evolution. Well, that's freaking wild, totally freaking wild, but it's not the end because it turns out that now we have hundreds of these. There are hundreds of these segments that are called human accelerated regions because evolution has been sped up in these regions, in these highly stable, super stable segments of code have been accelerated suddenly, and that over half are now known to be associated with fetal brain development. Is anyone finding that random when we talk about random evolution? That ain't sounding so random. 
That isn't a scatter shot of everything across our body. Over 50% is to do with fetal brain development, and particularly associated with new areas of the brain like the neocortex, right? the, the most important novel part of the human brain that is responsible for a lot of things like speaking and maths and abstract thinking. And right, So that's super weird. But it doesn't end there. It does not end there. Because just in the last few months, we've had a few more uh, findings. We now know that a lot of information is missing in these areas, that we have what are called H. condels or human conserved deletions. So these, again, highly conserved areas of code seen across all the other mammals, where in humans, big chunks have gone. They've just been deleted. Now, and as the scientists looking at this have said, well, this should be a huge problem. You know, they can't just, this stuff can't just disappear. This is super important. Like, look at all the other mammals. They've all got it. How can it just disappear in us and us still be all right? Not only are we all right, it turns out, but these deletions on areas that would not have happened if these areas remained where they were. It always isn't that fortunate that these chunks that happen to just magically disappear after being constant and still being all the other mammals, that they assist in these brain changes that give us our complex brain. Right, well, that you would think, surely that's enough, Bruce. God, there can't be more. You know, this is absurd already. Well, yes, there is. There is more. Because again, just in the last few weeks, an article came out, and I'm sure some of you have seen this. Turns out that a singular event, now, now we're getting even really absurd. Remember, evolution is the gradual, uh, you know, gradual accumulation of changes over vast periods of time, right? So, oh, you know, a bit here and a bit there over time, over millions of years. Now they have found that a singular event occurred in the human lineage that gave us, again, parts of the complexity of the human brain, and it occurred either in, therefore is either in a single egg or sperm, i.e. in a single fetus, right? So their model is in a single fetus. It may have been in more than one, but of course, the odds of that naturally would be so absurd as they wouldn't suggest that. But so they're saying that it's crazy enough you know, it has to have happened in an individual, you know, there's this random mutation, but this has happened in one generation now, and that there's a refolding, a three-dimensional refolding of the core information, the core DNA in our cells, and that it's been beneficial. It has helped to give us the brain. It's moved areas of code in such a way as, again, it changes the way that they turn off and on other switches that cause expression of genes. So again, a lot of this is regulatory material. So it regulates the expression of your genes. It doesn't, it's not coding for genes, but it does, it changes the way a gene expressed. So if you imagine if you had a gene for say, um, skull shape and you express it greater, you know, that the skull shape changes or you express it less, it will change it again, the skull shape, or turn it off or on, you know, you might not have a skull, right? So this, this is a way that these genetic switches kind of work. And most of those are in this non-code, what we now know as this non-coding DNA, that they're doing really important stuff that we didn't really understand in the past, and we now realize that they actually control a lot of the expression of our genes, and that this stuff is not junk at all, it's doing loads of really important stuff. So now we're at the point where we have a long list of anomalies. And so when are these occurring? Well, we know by looking at the fossil record, also if we touched on, we know they occur before the split, but we also know when you look at the fossil record that suddenly around about 800,000 years ago, there is a sudden inexplicable increase in cranial capacity in our, in our lineage. And that has not been understood in the past. There's a few wild theories put out there about 
cooking food and maybe the brain growing and you know but nobody knew so now we know actually there's all of these genetic anomalies occur and then the brain goes wackadoodle it just starts you know expanding beyond uh, anything that's been seen previously where the body and brain kind of expanded together now it's just the head it's just gone you know really big so this is occurring in that period from 800,000 years ago roughly to about 200,000 years ago we have this super accelerated expansion you can look at the charts online if you look for that you'll find the charts showing this sudden expansion so in other words all of this crazy stuff or at least the bulk of it is happening right in the period that we've been talking about that we now know this is happening as the at the split that leads to all the large-brained hominins, the Denisovans, the Neanderthals, and now several other populations who we don't have names for. In fact, just this week, they've found you know, evidence of another lineage. And, and of course, we've got um, what we call ghost populations, where we only know of them through genes in humans, but we know there's several other lineages that we mated with and absorbed over the um, that period. So initially, there seems to be a whole load of different large-brained humans coming out of, suddenly out of one lineage, almost like, somebody is experimenting and out of the lab is coming more than one result well isn't that funny isn't that funny exactly what you'd expect so we now have what seems to be a small population interbreeding that have a load of wacky changes and that they go on to get upgrades that make them the most um, competent you know uh, hominin on the planet so they outcompete everyone they outbreed everybody they seem to absorb the other populations when they breed with them you know almost they all go forth and multiply seems that when they may mate with others they kind of absorb them into this populace and eventually there's a total replacement and all that's left is these strange new homo sapiens and indeed i would put uh, denisovans and the under that under the homo sapiens family really i think at this point we just say that you know everyone post the split is a subspecies of homo sapiens you know or give it another name from you know homo uh, alienus or something whatever we want but at that point everything is under that we are all a subspecies of that change at ancestor x and ancestor x remains unknown they seek him here they seek him there they seek him everywhere they cannot find ancestor x because ancestor x doesn't exist ancestor x is a lab experiment you can't find what didn't exist because what they are looking for is a parent you know a hominin which is actually just represents an experiment that was done so you can't find and funnily enough they cannot find this ancestor x in the record anywhere because you get these other earlier hominins like rectus and whatnot and then you get our first ancestors and somewhere in the middle is something that happens that's weird they can't they can't find an ancestor for it but something happens but of course you know there wouldn't be now just to give you an analogy for that today we're doing genetic experiments where you can take a chicken egg right and they can recreate a dinosaur-like creature with the chicken egg you know this is perhaps you might be familiar with this they're doing other experiments with chickens making them have dinosaur feet and all sorts of so now if you think about it if you saw that offspring and it looked to you like a kind of weird you know dinosaur bird like creature and you thought well you know that dinosaur like creature it must have you know parents dinosaur like parents somewhere on the earth and you went seeking them you would never find them right you would never find them because it came out of a chicken so you wouldn't you'd look at those chickens and say well they can't be the parents they look nothing like it right they don't have the same features because you know the parent is just a lab experiment there is no parent as such it's just been happening in a lab with a fetus right so that's why we see that and we see another number of anomalies with these early fetuses in fact because you know we have what's called 
a process of uh, the word from others essentially that we have been uh, sorry neoteny that's the word for so we are a neotenous we consider neotenous primate right so what does that mean neoteny is the retention of juvenile traits into adulthood in an organism right so we retain the infant traits that you see in other primates so if you look at a baby chimp and you look at a, a human being you'll notice actually that it's very similar to us and that's because at that stage it hasn't become particularly hairy it hasn't had its jaw move forwards it hasn't got most of the really robust features and brow ridges and the other things that we really think of to a chimpanzee that make it look totally different to us most of those traits come on as it matures we have been someone has jammed the brakes on in our infancy in terms of our morphology that we retain this this round head without the jaw and the brow ridges without the hair and all of this has a lot of benefits as well because in infancy brain structure is more flexible you have you see the play and the range of learning any sort of mammalian species is different to the adults the adults usually specialize they're stuck in their ways they have no particular things they do and that's about it it's the children that can play and learn and are hardwired for that look at us right to our adulthood we're focused on games and sport and play and we can change we can learn we can change our career paths we can change our interests we have this flexibility that is not seen in adults and other species again that's to do with neoteny and that also begs the question again if thought why would you do it so you want if you want the human brain to expand you've got to get that bloody brain out of the birth canal right you've got to be born there's no good making these changes and then every mother dies in childbirth because the head's too big right that's a flipping problem so what's been done in this is the the timing of gestation and again our time of gestation got really quite private we are born as essentially a fetus so we are born as a fetus and look at other mammals we're, we're again unique in this when we are born we are completely freaking useless yeah we cannot fend for ourselves we cannot do anything most of our you know other mammal friends they're up and running pretty quick you know they, they are fairly self-sufficient within you know, months or a few years humans are not you know we have this dragged out infancy and part of that is because we are still rapidly developing in the way the fetus does after we are born brain expansion is occurring almost on par to when we're in the womb so even the head hasn't infused you know we're not we're not functional you know you can't even hold the head up this isn't right this isn't right look at the other primates something's very wrong here on top of that we have one of the most difficult childbirths of any primate the other primate they don't have these problems these childbirth problems they don't have the agony they don't have all the the deaths they don't have any of this there's a lot of other issues as well very quick on genetics before i leave that there is also negative traits and this is a really good book out there called human errors that i would recommend to people and in that he basically this book is mainly an argument against creationism the idea that uh, humans were made perfect by a perfect god which is the creationist kind of theory which is obviously somewhat related you know through the intelligent design world which intelligent design is meant to include both theological and non-theological intelligent um, models for how the universe came about for how humans came about right? and in, in the creationist view a perfect god makes humans perfect well as pointed out in human errors this just doesn't stand up because we are full of errors. We have all sorts of, we have bones that shouldn't be there. Our eyes are poorly done, you know, we have 
um, all sorts of organs that are problematic. And one of those notable things is we have a whole load of reproductive problems, an absolute load of them. Uh, particularly, and I know that you know this is probably I mean, most people will know of, but certainly women will, that the number of miscarriages that human females have is just extraordinary and horrifying. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, they'll say, why has God done this to me? And you know, it's horrific. And I totally understand. But if they, if they look at the facts, they realize, actually, we are freaking cursed with this because you know, the other parties don't have this problem. We have a huge number of feces are lost during gestation due to different errors and stuff like that. We also have other problems to do with um, reproduction, probably hidden reproduction and hidden ovulation and all sorts of stuff that are really, really, are really problematic. It's, it's almost a wonder that we managed to have any children at all and we've managed to survive because we have so many of these reproductive issues. Now you think about it, what is prime directive number one for evolution? If, if evolution was a, an algorithm or program, before like that, what would its prime directive be? Well, reproduction, right? Reproduction. Organisms have to keep croppies and they have to, you know, give offspring and continue on. That's the most important function from an evolution point of view. Now, why? Why oh why would that area be so problematic in humans then? If it's, it's not like that in all these other mammals, why have we got that? Why hasn't the evolutionary forces swept away all of those who had these problems and left only those that didn't you know, didn't have these reproductive problems. That's what evolution does. You know, it would favor those who can, you know, who can breed the best. So this doesn't make sense. So in other words, what you find is in the very same segments of code that have given us our higher brain functions and the morphology and anatomy that has made us the kind of the masters of earth is attached to the same freaking errors that are causing us all these genetic problems, these genetic diseases, these anomalies, these reproductive problems. They're all in the same mass of code where this was done shoddily, that this wasn't a perfect upgrade. Remember what they said, we had to do this with pretty much the medical kits on the sources, that we had to make a new species with what we had that this was a flipping really edge of your seats experiment where you know that a lot of it went wrong and that's why we are not a perfect creation that we have all of these errors and they cannot be naturally resolved because if it sweeps if the evolution sweeps away those problems with it goes all of our higher brain functions with it goes our opposable thumbs and these great benefits that have made us what we are and so this is not just about an upgrade. The evidence is also in the problems. And that, again, is very telling because you hear these stories of upgrades, but it's not just about upgrades. This is what you would expect in an experiment that wasn't done, you know, over a long term with the best tools, you know, with the best minds doing it. It was done by who survived the ship, what technology they had and the best they could do. Most of they may have been masters of genetic engineering. They didn't have the right technologies. They didn't have the time and they had to do their best. And that, again, is the further evidence of this, not just the improvements and the upgrades, but the very problems themselves. And indeed, I think that the only way we're ever going to fix these is by learning from them how to re-engineer parts of the genome, because we cannot otherwise heal these genetic diseases, which, again, is a whole other related topic. But when you put these together, and when you think it through, and I know it's a lot of information, when you put these three areas together, each one of them 
is extraordinary. The impacts, the, the object breaking up, and the anomalies. And these are the three cores of the transmission. So I consider this to be confirmation of an alien contact, an objective scientific supporting of what they have said, and therefore we do not need any governments, we don't need anyone else, we simply need this information to not be suppressed further. And that is the current situation. It is, it is being sidelined and suppressed. And you will note very quickly that you will note journalists are not taking notice of this. You will note that the great uh, bastions of, of uh, you know, celebrities in these fields are not talking about this. That these, uh, all these people have these platforms, they're not talking about this. That it is being deliberately kept to the sidelines, despite the fact it's the only, the only case fully supported by an immense amount of evidence. So I'll stop it there and I'll, I'll let you jump in if I don't ask uh, any questions. I know that um, there's a lot of information. I appreciate that, um, you know, I don't expect to remember it all at oh, once. Yeah. I hope you listen back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jump in. Absolutely. Ton, a ton of information. It's, you know, what's interesting because during the space I had, um, I was, uh, you know, sending the message, uh, you know, uh, spreading awareness to the space. I had a quick, not even a quick, but a quick, um, exchange of information um to bring awareness to this space i had um pardon me um so i had a a, a quick um exchange uh, with nick pope which i'm bruce i'm pretty sure you nick you know nick pope uh he was talking about catching on the space later and talking about specific elements of this of the conversation that you just had right and then i was having a conversation with heidi hollis which i'm sure you know as well and she had a question for me to ask you. So she said she apologizes that she's not able to join. Um, she's actually about to uh, record a for a conference, but she asked a question. She said, I wonder if he is able to have genetic material tested for its DNA. And um, if so, could the test for potential different DNA attributes, uh, if it's submitted this way, his way? Um, so she was asking about that uh, in terms of the, the jump DNA and all that stuff. So it's ironic that you're talking about this and I'm having this conversation with uh, with Miss Hollis and then she's asking for me to ask you um, to ask you that. And uh, she says she definitely wants to jump in um, on a space with you next time. And hopefully Nick Pope can join in too. And we'll have like a trifecta going on because the, the conversation is, is interesting. I'm, I'm super intrigued by the DNA aspect, and I'm not sure if you're able to answer the question, if there's enough substance. Um, but yeah, in terms of genetic testing, what could we do um, in order to kind of test that uh, hypothesized theory, uh, even though I consider it a little bit more than a theory based on what you said? Yeah, I mean, obviously we have already, I mean, just to sort of a little bit, of course we have, as I appreciate, a lot of evidence already that shows that an anomalous event occurred. But what I would love to see is for the discovery of human DNA that is older than 788,000 years, right? Because what I would like to see is the recovery of DNA that would say at least 800,000 years old uh, from a, you know, a purported human ancestor, you know, perhaps Homo erectus, that'd be ideal. And to have that genome fully you know, fully um, extrapolated. And we know that can be done because we now have DNA from mammoths that's over, well over a million years old. So that's been done. So that was always a, they always thought they, always, they wouldn't be able to do that, that that would be an absolute limit. We wouldn't get to that age. But we now know that we can. 
So what we need to find is some poor bugger who fell into an ice pool and froze, something like that, you know, would be ideal, you know, or is in some mountain cave in the Himalayas, you know, frozen solid. That would be ideal, you know, but of course it could just be a bone that's in a cool enough cave or something we can get the DNA. If we can do that, you can then compare the genome of humans before this event against those after. And that, that should show some radical changes in that period. That would be, so that would be the ideal. If we can see material from an unmodified hominin against this one, that is, you could say, is almost the, the, the missing gold standard for it that I would want to see, because everything else we have, we have the, you know, the differences with the, you know, the human accelerated regions, we've got the human deleted regions, we've got the chromatin fusion, you know, we've got obviously, there's other genes that appear, like brain genes that are really anomalous. And so. so we've got like a wealth of evidence pointing to anomalies at the split. The only thing missing, if you could say, would be the icing on the cake, would be to have that DNA. We just, we just haven't found it yet. So that, that would be the answer is that we have, we have enough, but I would love to have that additional bit, which would be like, yeah, the, the icing on the cake. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was thinking when you mentioned the, a frozen, they call it a, a frozen specimen. Um, first and foremost, I know there's a couple of questions. Um, I want to gauge your time because you just spent about two hours on an epic epilogue. So I want to know how you are with time and if you're able to take a few questions. If not, uh, we can always leave that for another time. Um, but I, I do, I am considerate of your yeah. times. So yeah, no, we'll just do a few questions. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you a shout. Okay. Nice you just let me. Yeah, yeah. You just let let, let me know. Um, how many, uh, you know, tell me when that that's enough, and then we can stop it out there. And I, what I will say is that definitely, um, we gotta speak one of these uh upcoming days to kind of coordinate that because I know that I have uh Heidi who's very interested in in um Heidi Hollis, of course, that wants to contribute to a space with you. So I'm sure you would be uh, very intrigued to have a discussion with her uh, in terms of uh, more on the, the talk of the genetics, of course. So um, we'll, we'll discuss that on a, on a later date, but yeah, go ahead, Nita. Thank you very much. First of all, Bruce, thank you very much. It was a very informal uh, discussion that you were having. Well, you shared a lot of valuable information. I have my share questions, but I want to give priority to someone who asked this following question in the comments. Mike Kilo asked if you're involved in the Galileo project in, headed by Avi Loeb. Uh, no, I'm not. I have reached out to them before, but I have um, founded a, a non-profit called Alien Techno Signatures Research Group, um, and that's in collaboration with uh, a couple of you know interested scientists so our aim is to put out some papers um, on the related topics there's a very small number of people that are involved but we do have uh, a backer who is also uh, a financial backer of the Galileo project so we have a bit, of a, a bit of a link there but I've reached out to Avi Loeb and I've not heard back and I reached out on their contact box on their on their website not heard back um, Avi was asked a question about my work uh, on Kurt's Theories of Everything podcast, uh, to which he did respond, and he said, you know, that um, basically that, yeah, that it was possible that the tectites did represent material from the interstellar objects, that they were a mystery that needs more information on, and that, um, you know, he'd be interested, of course, to see if what they found from one of these interstellar objects was also tectites, because, of course, that would support it, but it was very clear from my answer that he hadn't read my 
my preprint paper that I have on my search gate. Um, or at least he didn't say he had, because the guy was sort of asking him about that. And the way he answered suggested either he wanted to not talk about it or that he hadn't read it. I mean, I can't tell you which it was, but he didn't refer directly to it. Um, but so he seemed to concur that that was a possibility, but didn't go any further. And I've had no correspondence with him. You'd think that being that there are not as many people putting out papers on interstellar objects, that his team might have actually replied to me. So I don't know what to make of that. Some people told me that that they want to go slowly with their kind of revelations and that that's a, a deliberate reason why they haven't spoken to me uh, because my work is a bit further along down that track than they're ready to go. Uh, it could be, I, I don't know, you know, it could just be that they just haven't bothered, you know, I'm not sure. But so I don't work directly with them. And that's the the, the sort of tenuous link, if you like, with them. Um, and of course, linked by the topic into the set of objects. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate it. Um, Bruce, thank you for what you've been sharing. Um, what you shared was wonderful. I, I enjoyed everything about it. Um, if there's anyone I want to talk to about aliens, it's definitely you. Um, but one of my questions I want to go to is, uh, what is your thoughts about the Black Knight satellite? There's a lot of ideas out there about this being some type of extraterrestrial spacecraft or some kind of, um, it's, it's something that, you know, is what some people call a conspiracy theory. But I just wanted to understand if you knew anything about the Black Knight sa satellite. Yeah, I'm quite interested in it because, you know, it has come up a number of times through, of course, the last few decades, the idea that there was detection of a satellite, at least one satellite, maybe more, at least one that was in orbit, that was in orbit before we put anything up there. Um, and that, you know, there's links to Tesla, you know, apparently that he had some sort of contact with it. Uh, also, there's been a couple of different scientists, I think both Russian and American scientists who believe that they, you know, observed this um, object going around. I think it's supposed to be in a, a circumpolar um, orbit, so going from like north to south pole. Uh, there's obviously the images from satellite, sorry, from NASA missions, and some of them, okay, there's one at least that seems to be a heat blanket, but there's another one which seems to show an object which is probably not, and which probably is some kind of satellite. Um, and further to that, very interesting as well, is the work of, uh, there's a group of scientists looking at unusual reflections in photographic plates from before satellites were put up and they found a number of twinkles, unexpected twinkles, so lights that appeared and disappeared, and they called vanishing, um, vanishing objects, something, their project, VASCO, and if people look at the VASCO project, so they basically have found what looked like possibly satellites in orbit before any, in any of our terrestrial satellites were put up there. So again, that fits with that kind of idea of the Black Knight. Now, as I touched on earlier, I remember there's been plenty of time for probes, many kinds of probes from many places to have reached Earth. There is no reason at all why, say, at least one or more wouldn't have been put into terrestrial orbit. I mean, other places I've pointed out, you know, you could have some out in the asteroid belt watching us. You might have some at the Lagrange points. You might have some on the moon. You might have sentinel probes on Earth. Again, there's no reason to think there's just one, right? And so the Black Knight satellite in that context makes a lot of sense. I know that I think it was, um, I can't remember the guy's name now, but the guy did come up with the fear that he was sending out uh, information and it had a star map. I think he later on sort of rescinded that. So that he thinks he was wrong. But there's still this issue with the uh, the long delay, um, long delay kind of radio signals where it gets reflection of radio signals that seem to bounce back to us. And some people have this is another mysterious phenomenon, and they think that um, it could be that there's a probe that is 
capturing signals from Earth and then sometimes sends them back, almost to say, I've heard you, acknowledgement, I've heard you, acknowledgement. And no one knows really what these long delay um, signals are, right? So we have a number of kind of tentative lines of evidence suggesting there may well be some kind of sentinel in orbit around Earth. And I, I, I suspect that there would be. Again, you know, if there's, um, if there's one, and again, I think I'm quite, quite happy, you know, that we have at least one, like a, you know, a sentinel probe on Earth. Uh, it could well be that there was others left, you know, in other places, you know, or that arrived from different species. Again, you know, it doesn't have to be from the same group. You know, that one lot may have put something in orbit, another lot put something on the planet surface, others on the moon. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I'm quite familiar with that. I, I do suspect the Black Knight satellite lore goes back to at least one real satellite based on all of that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. That, that um, I've been researching a lot about that, and I know that uh, there's been some times when individuals say that they've actually been monitoring it. They say they got pictures of it and so on and so forth. So it's just an interesting anomaly that's out there that relates to pop possibly extraterrestrial life. I, I appreciate that again, Bruce. Thank you. No worries. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, again, a very interesting topic. I think people should have a look into that because, yeah, again, I mean, I think if there's one, there's probably many. And it's the same with the interstellar objects thing. You know, you think about it. if we've been missing them all that time, we know we found one and then we start to find many. I think the same would go with probes. Again, it's actually, you know, when the the analogy I use, you know, the recent kind of uh, the issue with the at least alleged balloons and the shoot downs. The, and that all came about by opening opening the apertures, you know, reducing the filters. And I took that as very symbolic um, for humanity and this, this topic. Now, I don't know if that was done to be symbolic of that. It has made me wonder because you think it was like, well, we're going to change our filters and let more information in about what's up there. And that was very symbolic because suddenly there was these, you know, these free objects and the shoot down all this. It's not that there was never anything up there before. So why was that done? Nothing's been repeated about it. And there was all that talk about you know, changing the sensors, opening the apertures, you know, letting more information through the filters. And I thought, well, isn't that symbolic to us that we're now, we are opening the filters, that humanity is opening its filters and is looking at the sky in a new way. And he's suddenly seeing all these interstellar objects and you know, he's embracing the idea of UAP and UFOs. What we've done is change our filters. The phenomena itself hasn't changed. The presence of objects hasn't changed. Right. So I, I do think that this is a connected, a very symbolic thing is that all we're doing is changing how we look. And I think we may start to see that there is a wealth of these artifacts and these objects and these probes and these crafts. And that we're going to be in a few years almost like oh Christ almighty. There was hundreds of the things. Right. And I, I think that's the wild bit of what we're going into. I think that we may actually get to be almost like it was, you know, you turn on the like, you know, there's nothing in the room. Well, there's nothing in the room because you haven't got the lights on. Turn the flipping light on and your room is full of stuff, right? And I think that's what we're going to see is that now we're just turning on the light and we're going to see that our solar system is probably bloody plagued with probes and stuff that have been coming here since that oxygen um, event. And that over billions of years, we've probably had probes from every civilization in the cosmos that has arrived here, right? Because we lit up like a Christmas tree, you know, over two billion years ago. And that was so anyone who could see that has had time to send probes or craft here. Now that also, keep in mind, I mean, I, I suspect, and I'm not the only one to suspect this, that DNA itself was put here. 
you know, that it's a kind of a terraforming technology, in which case at least one civilization was aware of us from the start. But that doesn't mean that others wouldn't then see us later. So when they see life take root, and when that oxygen bloom appears, other civilizations would have seen it too. I personally would suggest that DNA was seeded here and that that initial civilization would have been aware and probably present or at least monitoring the whole time. And again, um, Carl Sagan in his paper says, that, you know, if someone came here long ago, you know, they might have left some kind of base here, a monitoring station. Makes sense. I mean, particularly if you found there was life or you seeded that life, why wouldn't you leave something monitoring what happened? You know, why wouldn't you? You've got that technology. Are you just going to fly off? So well, that was interesting. You know, you're going to surely going to leave at least a probe or something to to mark out that this is a world of interest with life on it. Because what we see out there, these gazillions of dead worlds. So it's interesting. This is one of the um, one of the the weird things that we hear from the scientists in the space science community is, oh, why would Earth be interested to aliens? Why would they come all the way here? Oh, to see these lousy, stinking humans. You know, we we see that attitude a lot. And that is freaking absurd, absolutely absurd. There's us, desperate to find even a flipping microbe, right? But why would aliens want to bother sending a probe to come and see lousy old Earth and its humans and its massive biosphere with unbelievable complex life? You know, why would they be interested in that? Well, take a look at that. Yeah. You know, it's exactly. dead. Exactly. Why would yeah? Why wouldn't they be interested? It's flipping dead worlds galore, you know. But how many have got life? We haven't seen any other ones. So you got to think what is going on there. I find that you know the absurdities of things that get said. There's something I did miss. I should don't mind just quickly saying on SETI. And this is so I write about on my Substack, which people can have a look at. I mean, my BruceFenson.substack.com. You know what's going on there? I talk about all this. But there's a really interesting. I got really lucky with um, a situation because everyone here, I'm sure, knows Seth Shostak. You know, they wheel him out every now and again to laugh about UFOs and whatnot, right? The the main astronomer at the SETI Institute, right? Now, the SETI Institute has been failing to find anything of interest for decades, as we pointed out, and they get about $20 million every year, or is it 200 million, something like that. I looked it up, and it was a lot of money. They get millions of dollars every year to not find anything. Right, now, that's fine, private money. It's not, it's not your tax money, so don't worry. At the very least, it's not your tax money. But they get all this money, and they don't find anything. Now, I wanted to put a question to Seth. I wanted to for a while. And I got really fortunate because Mick West, like everyone knows Mick West, Mick West had Seth Shostak on his podcast, right? And by sheer luck or fate, I managed to get a question to Mick West to put to Seth Shostak. And it bloody got asked. And I was so happy because he asked him, is genomic SETI, which is what, obviously what I'm involved in, it's a search for extraterrestrial intelligence through the genome, right? Is that legitimate? Should they be doing it? And basically, he comes out this big long thing about yes, well, actually, it is legitimate, and that you know, Paul Davies, who's another luminary of space science and the SETI post detection director, and all this, um, he says yes, he's been talking about it for years and saying what a good idea it is. He says, oh, but as far as I know, nobody's bothered to do it, and that you probably could put a grad student on it and they could do it, you know, in a, in a few weeks, you know, without any expense or anything like that. Now, you think about stop and think about that for a minute. You've got the main guy from the search for extraterrestrial intelligence with the absolute hide, the absolute freaking hide to sit there with all those millions of dollars pouring through to find nothing, saying that they could have cheaply and easily done real science, real SETI science, 
on the genome looking for any encoded messages or mutations that were artificial by asking a grad student to spend a few weeks going through the papers a few weeks if that doesn't anger you i don't know what is going on with you because decades these people have found nothing and there's him saying there's these people you think about it Seth Shostak, uh, Paul Davies, these guys are luminaries in their field. Do you think that they would struggle to get a grad student to volunteer for them to do this project? People would be queuing up, queuing up. If, if they put out the shout and said, we want some scientists to volunteer to look for evidence of mutations in the genome that suggest a message or some kind of engineering, they would have them queuing up. They have never done it. They give lip service to it being legitimate science and they've never bloody done it. And he had the high, and then he started saying, well, oh, you know, because if aliens came here, why would they leave like that? You know, oh, Zork, Zork, should we leave a message? Oh, like that. No, because they'll get swept away in the genome. Why don't we leave uh, a hard drive in the, in the ground? Oh, no, we're going to leave it in this area of the genome that's going to get swept away by evolution. And, was, and he, he just, you know, Zork and, all, you know, back to that silly little green man talk sort of, you know. And that the truth is, he's ignorant on the topic, that these areas would not be swept away. That it's well understood that we have these areas in the genome that are nearly unchanging. And that's exactly where everyone has said that if you're going to look for a message, look in these highly conserved areas. And there you have the cheek. He didn't even know what he was talking about. And then to poo-poo it like that after having admitted that, that they know it's real science and they know they could be doing it and not one of them has bloody done it. And indeed, it does only take a few weeks to look through and realize that you've got all of these, these anomalies. So what is going on there? What is going on there? And people should be absolutely horrified because it, it shouldn't be left to me, you know? It shouldn't be left to me, a flipping IT grad, you know, someone on Ancient Aliens to be doing that. It's absolutely freaking absurd that you've got these luminaries in the field. It is, it really is. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It really is. But yeah, I go back to questions. But you know, obviously, I'm passionate about this, and I'm also horrified about what I'm seeing happening in the SETI world. Yeah, that that passion is definitely felt. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's crazy. It's quite a mouthful, to say the least. It's um, everything you said. I couldn't agree more on. I mean, the fact is that there's there are we have the capabilities to do something as simple as that. Grad students. Uh, scientists who are willing to do this <laughs> at no cost just for the, the sake of right. curiosity and interest and so i have to do that in my own time as a person you know on a low-income person you know um, with family you know i have to flip and do that well there's a, a whole massive institute with 20 million pounds i mean it's sickening it is sickening yeah it's one of those i mean what a mouthful, Bruce. I mean, what, what a great, uh, I really enjoyed today. You narrated this whole story and it came back full circle and it just starts to make a lot of sense. I know initially at the beginning, some of you who may not be familiar with some of his work, you'd be like, what is going on here? But you see at the end how everything kind of, it does, not kind of, it does connect. So there's a lot of hypotheticals involved in this. Uh, there's a lot of things that have to be Kind of looked into a lot more for some reason it's not but this is probably one of the most compelling stories i've ever heard and this is coming from someone that is uh, you know i'm keen on ancient history i feel that this is definitely part of that it's it's definitely ancient history
Thank you, I appreciate it. And I mean, I'm happy to answer any more questions if anyone in the audience wants to, you know, pass you a question or to come up and ask. I mean, that, I'm quite happy to answer a couple more. I mean, it's um, obviously it's a very complicated topic. And I wouldn't expect anyone to go away from this after two hours and, and retain everything in your mind. You know, hopefully we'll listen back and look away and look at the studies that I've mentioned, you know, to see that they're legitimate and they're out there, you know, and obviously they can check my substack and stuff. But, you know, I'm quite happy to answer a couple more questions if anyone's got any. Well, absolutely. Um, what I would say is, yes, yes. Um, what I would say is, how much um, time do you have? Uh, you have time for one more question, or, or what are? Uh, let's say let's probably another quarter of an hour. Okay. Um, there's a bunch of hands up. I'm not sure who was first. Um, this is going to be interesting. Um, oh, uh, Anita, did we see who had their hand up first? Um, Michael, she, Shy, and uh, Trevor. Michael, what about uh, Jade? Just I don't see okay. any other. Okay, so request right now. Okay, so let's let's do this. Um, let's go with Michael since you saw his hand first. What I'm going to ask everyone after Michael, please write your question in the bubble, just in case we don't get to you. What we're going to do is we're going to take two to. Um, hi, Bruce. Thanks. Thanks for the um, the talk today. It's fantastic. I, I actually live in the Gosford area. And so I've been to the, the Gosford Glyphs and uh, a couple of times. And I've met some of the Aboriginal elders from the Gosford region and had some really interesting insights from them. Um, first on the Gosford Glyphs, I'd say they look too new. The, um, the sandstone weathers um, pretty quickly. And while they're not on a flat surface, um, the Aborigines tell me that for their sites that they actually are very annoyed with the national parks here because traditionally they have a, a regrooving ceremony and, and so they retrace the outlines of the rock art um, because it does weather so quickly in the sandstone. Um, the other thing I thought you might find interesting is they have a, a another area about 30 kilometres from here called Mount Yango. And to them, that's the most sacred site for, for the Australian Aboriginals in this area. Um, and apparently this is where Biami, which they believe gave them all their law. Um, but in their tradition, Biami returned to the, to the stars. So they have a, they have a tradition of, of, you know, contact from entities from other worlds. And uh, the other interesting thing is, um, the, a lot of the rock art in this area has got whale etchings in it. They believe they have a thing called song lines, which is similar to the ley lines. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it's embedded in their rock art. And, but it's also a way to kind of navigate the country, know where there's food and stuff like that. But that's also, there's also a metaphysical aspect, aspect to where they can, um, you know, telepathically connect to to um, the ground, to the earth, and to animals, and um, and so a lot of the rock art around here is also um, got a whale art and dolphin art, 
um, and and they believe that that signifies, um, or that they believe that the whales that migrate up and down this coast follow the song lines as well. So, um, and I and then I also have a friend from this area who saw um, uh, he was out fishing on Brisbane waters in the nineties and and saw one of the craft um, went over silently, like only about twenty meters above him and you know really scared him <laughs> um anyway just wanted to share those insights and and thanks again for a fascinating talk yeah fascinating. thank you very much yeah i mean like i said i do i stay sort of ambivalent on the exact age of the of the glyphs because i mean they're not for me they're not like particularly you know crucial to anything obviously i've, I've detailed but it does happen to be that they're at that sacred site so I mean, that's where most people would um probably have heard of that site from to be honest is in the controversy around the Gosford glyphs um but the other thing yeah of course is interesting like i kind of hinted to this was that the sighting of the crafts over the waters and as you said there's maybe another event where craft was seen over those waters um, but i found it very interesting because you know if this story was about to come out you know it's kind of funny that a few months before it seems like a craft was sucking something up out of the water and uh, supposedly that wrecked saucer, you know, or some parts of it would have, I suppose, been still in the bay. So it's kind of funny that before this, you know, all happens, this, you know, what comes out of this story, that there's a bloody, you know, a mass sighting seeing a ship, you know, go around the bay, sucking up water, trying to find something in the water. Um, and then, you know, all this information comes out. So I do wonder if it wasn't recovering, you know, some part or all of, the crashed saucer you know i can't say it was but obviously it's very funny time just about three months i think um difference to when they went down to the site before that you had this mass sighting so um yeah very strange and obviously yeah there's quite a bit of UFO activity around that that kind of region it seems um so yeah very very fascinating all that and on the our original side of this story as well just very quickly there's a, a paper i mean i'm gonna make, mention another quickly another paper for people want to look at is australites um, part two, Early Aboriginal Perception and Use by Philip Clark, and that's in the Journal of Astronomical History and Heritage. And so in that, he talks about, about connections to Australite. And one of the, one of, there was a few different interesting things there, just very quickly. So they can see, they're considered to be ancestor objects. So I'll just read a little bit of this. So the perceived power of Australites was derived from their connection to ancestors who went up to the sky world after the creation. It was a widely held Aboriginal belief that it was in the sky world that the ancestors, often seen as celestial bodies, created the weather for the earth, still had an influence over living people. There was broad agreement between Aboriginal people and Europeans concerning the origin of Australites. The Aborigines tell us that these stones fell from the sky and are what our American friends would call good medicine, in which they agree with the majority of modern geologists. So in other words, the Aboriginal people already knew that these fell from the sky and were from space and that they had a connection to the ancestors and to the sky world, right? So you think about that. And then additionally, it says, so the blacks, again, this is quotes. So the blacks called them Nulu and they barter with them, the neighboring tribes as magic stones. And they believe the Australites reached the earth from some extraterrestrial region and possessed some magic power, right? And then the last bit, which I think is very um, interesting is, they say, according to Aboriginal patrol officer that they talked to, um, the Ninigar, or ice men, and you think of that as the tall Nordics and all that lore, right? The ice men, right? Made a black whore, a black 
hail of australites fall from the sky to kill ring-necked parrot men as punishment for killing all the waro the wallabies so in other words they're associated with the conflict between two groups and that these in that conflict this rain of debris of tektites fell from the sky so i mean you guys are okay they're just guessing all this stuff how could they how could they in any way know that this stuff was even from space, let alone anything else, but how could they associate with a, a conflict, um, these cosmic beings, uh, all of this, if it happened 780 or 1,000 years ago, right? Now, in conventional materialist terms, there's no way they could, right? There's no bloody way they could, because you can't pass down stories for 780 or 1,000 years, right? And you certainly can't have any written, written records or anything like that. But if you ask, some of the people there, like one of the, obviously Jerry Bostock, who was involved in this, he said, well, the thing is, you know, um, and not just a paraphrase, but he points out, says, you know, when we want to know something or refresh our understanding, we just go bush. We go bush, basically meditate, tune in, and we get the information. We get the information update, you know, as to what happened or what is it we need to know. So this story is pulled out of the ether again and again. So they don't need to bloody pass it down. And this is stuff that obviously doesn't fit with the materialist paradigm. So there's no way these people could know. How could they know that these tectites fell as you know as cosmic materials across? You know, that's a, for the materialists in the West would be well. No, obviously they can't know that. It's just some lucky guessing going on, right? Because it changes the paradigm. It has people being able to access information that they shouldn't have. And so the understanding there is very, very interesting when we hear about these ice men that they're associated with and these cosmic ancestors. So just to put that on there. Thanks. I'll let you fascinating. follow. Fascinating. So fascinating. I'm going to go <clears throat> next question to Shai, and then I'll do one more question. That's it for the space. Because Bruce, we, we are in European time, so we're five hours plus ahead. So we want to be considerate of his time. But... You know, we can always have a follow-up, I'm sure. Um, like I've mentioned, I'll have a follow-up. Uh, Shai, um, I'm going to bring you up. You can go ahead and ask your question, and then I'll do one more question after that, and then I'll cut, I'll cut it off at that, because Bruce does have to get going. Hello. Thank you so much for this space. And Bruce, thank you for this evening. I've been absolutely riveted to your every word. Uh, I've got two questions, if that's okay. Question number one is where in the world would you start looking for the genome if you could choose anywhere and you had all the money? Where would you start looking or isn't it a place? Is it not a place? Is it broader than that? And my second question is if you could meet the alien for the first person to go meet the, an alien that the, the, the government brought for us to meet, would you go and who would you take with you? Good questions. Yeah, I mean, where would we look? I mean, I suppose, I mean, hopefully in, again, sort of cool cave environments. I mean, they have found some, you know, interesting fossils up in the Himalayas of what seem to be you know, early, uh, like Denisovans. And so, you know, there's the possibility that we might find something up there in the, in the you know, in the Himalayas, in these mountain caves. So that would be probably an area I would love to see being really, you know, swept for the potential of a, a frozen set of remains, or, you know, a very cool, at least, set of remains high up in one of these caves in the Himalayas. So I suppose if I could say, yeah, where I'd love to see a lot of focus put on that, because, you know, unfortunately, Australia is terrible for preserving 
early remains. Um, and as is, you know, Africa is also pretty terrible for, in terms of preserving genes, you know, the, the actual DNA. Obviously, you can find fossils, but um, yeah, you need somewhere really kind of cool where it's going to be kept. But we do have proteins now, which is something, you know, alternatives, not as much, but you can use those and they retain longer. So, but yeah, probably that. Um, I was going to meet the aliens. I mean, well, we've had some very strange kind of contact events myself and my wife, to be honest, with some of these beings. So, um, but if I was to go and actually, let's say, physically go and, and meet them somewhere, well, I mean, yeah, I'd probably go with, I would go with my wife, I think, you know, because part of the house, I mean, she's a very gifted, um, shaman and very gifted psychic so I'm sure if they got funny she would pick up on it and would know, <laughs> know what was going on more more than I would um so she's I think amazing I'd, you are so lucky thank you so yeah I definitely am and I, I would I would want her there to be able to kind of communicate and know what the hell was going on with them because she's that yeah she's the in tune one with the um psychic abilities more than myself although I did I'd say this I did meet her because I used to be a reader on a psychic website so I have some abilities myself but not, not to the level that my my wife has so yeah I would go with my wife and um, yeah that would be it but we had had some contact events ourselves but not what I would call you know physically going out into the field meeting an alien so <laughs> that's kind of different great questions shy great questions I'm going to go for one more question and that's going to be coming from Trevor um, I know Trevor's been waiting since yesterday to kind of ask a question. So, um, Trevor, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yesterday in the conversation with Third Eye and, and Nita and whatnot, Bruce, what it, I don't know if you follow anything that, that's on TV from like the Skinwalker Ranch and Brandon Fogel and whatnot and their findings. Um, through the Mesa in megalithic structures, uh, as per conversation with Third Eye yesterday, what do you think is actually going on there? Like, could there, megalithic structure-wise, do you think that there still could be something there, or is it military? What What is your opinion? Yeah, I'm very sort of, you know, on the fence with... Um, with Skinwalker, I'm not sure because I mean, of course, we've had so many different legends. And look, look, I remember reading about it in 14 times, um, probably uh, well over 20 years ago, when the, the first stories of the wolf being shot, you know, and all that stuff. So I mean, you know, I've been interested in that story for over 20 years, um, but there obviously is a lot of you know inconsistencies, and you know, what's gone on with previous research where things weren't shared by Bigelow, you know, kept all the files and. There's all these different conflicting views as to if anything's happening and you know what if anything is happening. So I don't know. But you know, if there's really a structure down there, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's no particular reason why you couldn't have, you know, an alien technology, a structure or craft or a base or something underneath that. I mean, I'm not saying it is, but you could have. I mean, they seem to pick up some sort of magnetic anomalies and you know, possibly something down there. It's not impossible. Again, in the story I've, I've already shared, you know, it does talk about there being underground facilities from different beings that are under the surface of our planet. So, I mean, that's pretty wild stuff. So if that's true, I mean, there could be sites where you detect underground anomalies, which are remnants of, you know, alien facilities or indeed craft that have been buried by geological events. If, they, if something crashed in you know, geological time scales and was buried, I mean, it is possible. So, I mean, I'm not going to be one just to write it off. It does seem like it's an area that's you know, attracted a lot of strangeness. Um, and, you know, at least the claim is, you know, they're picking up some kind of buried anomaly. So 
I'll, I'll remain open-minded. Yeah, but of course, I, I'd love it to be that you know they, they bored down and found uh, you know an alien base under there, abandoned or something. I mean, that would be amazing. So we can keep our fingers crossed. Great question. Thank you. Thank you very much. No Bruce. worries. I really appreciate your time and being able to take the questions. I know we have more questions. Um, there's more people that have uh, questions pending, but I know we're on a time constraint and, um, you know, maybe in the future we can definitely address those questions. Um, I just wanted to thank you for your time and, and, and for the space. This was very informative, um, a great space with a lot of content and, uh, you know, <laughs> I have notes that I've taken down and I'm just, uh, once again, I'm kind of, you know, back to square one where I have more questions than I have answers. So I really wanted to thank you, thank you for your time and being able no worries, to post this space. Just quickly say, well, if people have questions, I suggest if, you know, if they put it as a comment, you know, to this space underneath, you know, on the file or whatever, tomorrow, you know, I can have a look at those questions and reply there, you know, so if before people disappear, if you know you have a question that I didn't answer now, yeah, just, just type it out and put it as a comment onto the space, you know, link, and I can come back to that tomorrow. I don't mind doing that. That's fine. Absolutely. Um, may, may I add, um, because, you know, people have shared <laughs> this space and they've retweeted and whatnot. Uh, I would suggest just so to avoid confusion for Bruce, um, make sure that you post in the comments of, you know, from the Third Eye's actual profile, from the original, original post, not the retweets and not the quote tweets, just to make sure everything's in one place. And I wanted to also thank you, Bruce. I mean, you're a great story, not a storyteller, but you're, you share everything in such a beautiful way. You started with aliens and then you, you, you connected the human origins to it. And uh, we all, all of us, we wonder where we come from, and you shed some light on that. So thank you very much. Appreciate you for that. You're very welcome. You know, I think it, tie, it ties together at least two of the biggest mysteries, and you know, like say, is there anyone else out there? Uh, you know, have they been here? And also, yeah, who are we? Where do we come from? And why are we sort of strangers in a strange land on this planet? You know, which for me, yeah, this case has also answered that for me. You know, I'm not outside of that kind of surprise or having to adjust to some of this understanding you know obviously i've had a bit more time and looking through a lot more of the information so i've been able to uh, you know adjust but you know i am compelled and convinced by the evidence that it's legitimate i, I never say that things are 100 proof that's not how science works but the the evidence to me is overwhelming that this is a legitimate contact that this information is, you know, supported by the objective information that's been found by other scientists, nothing to do with me. You know, the case didn't happen to me, you know, so I'm objective in that I wasn't involved. You know, I've looked at this as someone outside of it, and all of the information is from others, you know, from scientists. So I don't know. I don't know what's better than that standard, you know. So to me, it's a very, you know, overwhelming and super compelling. I don't have to believe it because the evidence is there. And I think that's for once. I'm not going to say I believe this is real because I'm convinced and compelled by the evidence, right? I don't believe it. Um, there's too much of believing stuff in ufology and ancient astronauts theory, right? There's too much people asking you to believe them. Uh, I won't ask you to. I'll ask you to look at the evidence, look at the data, uh, put together everything I've said, contrast it, you know, think how else could this have happened? Ask yourself all those questions. And if you come out at the end, like me, compelled to think this is legitimate, well, then, you know, that should change your perspective of 
life on earth and who we are and where we're going and also where this government story and all that's going as well you know because you've got to think is it likely that bruce is the only one who knows this and that's the other big red flag that you should think if this is legitimate and i can piece it together are we meant to believe that nobody else knows this and i keep that in mind that these papers i use they're available to everyone else and that there's people looking at this question uh, who would know all this stuff too beautiful before i pass the mic to rebirth i just wanted to say that we are going to host an, another space aka after party <laughs> right after this space the information is pinned uh to the jumbotron at the top uh rebirth any last words just want to say thank you again thank you again bruce uh thank you i really appreciate it some people turned up to listen um I know it's outside the ordinary. It's not what we usually, you know, hearing from the UFO world or the aliens world. You know, this is um, it's a very, very unique case. I'll put it that way, a very, very unique case. And it has definitely derailed everything I was doing in my life. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, I take it very seriously. You know, that's very obvious. I mean, you can all see that very obvious. Um, there's no, no, no grifting. There's no, it's just what it is. You can go and look at all the papers and go and look at everything I've said it's all publicly available you know there's I'm not doing anything behind the scenes or you've got to wait a year or the inside of the, you know it's not that it's not that right this is publicly available what I consider a confirmation not disclosure because it's not something that's hidden but it's a confirmation of contact so it's a different thing to government disclosure um, and very quickly before I, I hand back over just to say that obviously people want to follow any of this um i was thinking follow me on twitter but you know it's got the substack so if they look for my brucefenton.substack.com um i've been detailing the, the backstory of this there obviously there's exogenesis hybrid humans the book in 2020 that i put out which you know obviously i've done more since then but the book does lay out the same basic storyline and also there's um some well there's the new project hub which is aliantechnosignatures.com which is where alien technosignatures research group is based so i've got to do a bit more with that get some papers and stuff done but we're slowly getting there i haven't got the, the funding across yet to it but we've got the, the promise of funding bit complex to get that done because of the law about money moving and all that stuff but yeah hopefully we'll be able to get that um going forward very soon um so and obviously any support to that is really appreciated and obviously yeah in general you know i'm not being funny if people feel able to support the patreon or a paid substack sign up that does help it all helps um like i say i'm not i'm not a wealth fan low income person anything you do that helps me free up time to do this super appreciated i know that most people can't do that but it's super appreciated um and of course buying the book you know buying book helps if you buy it direct from me either of the books again is better but you know if you buy them online it's also it's great um so anything like that if you feel like supporting I'm very keen at some point to get some video stuff made around this. So I'm trying to talk to people that, that do that because I think it's a visual story and it would be super awesome to have it as a documentary and, uh, you know, as a, one day as a movie or something. I mean, Christ. Um, so hopefully all that happened. I feel like it will. And my last thing is so I'm just, I went up to, to do a visualization to get me onto Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan keeps on talking about his interest in the possibility of aliens modifying our ancestors, but nobody that's been on there has been able to actually give him a sensible like discussion on that. So he always just like touches on it and says, oh, that'd be so cool. But no one's been on there that actually has the information. So I'm really keen to get on Rogan in the next year or two. So if anyone's going to um you know visualization things they do by all means see me on rogan appreciate that because yeah if we can make that happen that'd be wild you know because the mainstream media 
is just not going near this. So uh, I don't know if that will ever change, but certainly the independent media is where I'm looking to to get um, you know this information out there into the public consciousness. Um, so that's my hope. Obviously, if anyone has ways or ideas around that, I'm totally open to people messaging about about that. You can you know send a comment on again a comment on the space or something if you have an idea about how to get this kind of widely known. Totally open to ideas. So yeah, thanks everybody. Really appreciate you all listening, and I'm, I hope that it, yeah it was mind expanding. Yes, thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate your time. Awesome space, and you know, you know, for the future moving forward, we'll, we'll, we have plenty of questions that are going to be formulated after this space. So, thank you once again for your time. I look forward for the next space. Uh, like I said, I got a couple of uh, the other ancient uh, alien um, guests like yourself that have been, you know, part of that show, and they want to participate. So we can set something up at a future date and. Uh, We'll, we'll talk in the DMs, but um, yeah, let's uh, focus on what a space we had today. And yeah, thank you for your time, Bruce. Appreciate it.